Heavy Cardboard, episode 140, the 2019 Essen Preview Show. Coming to you from Essen Prep headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and... An undisclosed location in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your hosts. I'm Edward. Hi, I'm Rado. All but right. you can call me Richard. All right. So I see, I think of you as Richard, but I know the world thinks of you as Rado, which is kind of like what happens with me when I go to conventions. People come up to me and be like, you're heavy cardboard. Be like, hi, I'm Edward. Yeah. Uh, so Just own it, man. Just own it. <laughs> yes, so I am heavy cardboard. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on today, uh, Rado. So I imagine most folks listening know who you are and know what you're about. But for those that maybe out there don't tell folks a little bit about you well hi there i have a youtube channel you can find me at rado.com r-a-h-d-o and uh like edward i cover the wide world of board games i really tend to focus on two-player experiences because 95 percent of all my gaming is with my wife jennifer and uh i also focus on the more care bear side of the industry because my wife and i don't like to attack each other and rip each other to shreds over the table um and so if if you're looking for uh, more in-depth representations of that style of gameplay, you might want to check me out because my shtick is I don't necessarily review the game so much as I run through them. I try to put you at the table so that after you've watched one of my videos, you almost feel like you've played it yourself and you can make an informed decision about whether it's something you and yours should pick up. I think that's perfect. So before we get into it any further, though, what got you into board games? Because I know you have a video game history and all that, but what got you into board games? Well, basically, uh, my wife and I were going to do a week-long road trip back when I lived in England, and we were going to drive all through France. And I was really freaking out because we were going to be basically off the grid for a week. And my wife and I, you know, we watched a lot of TV together. We played a lot of cooperative video games together. And I thought, well, what are we going to do every night? And I thought, when I was a little kid, me and my family, we played a lot of Scrabble. I should get a copy of Travel Scrabble. And I happened to be on the road at that point doing a video game convention in Seattle, Washington. And I figured, well, okay, I guess I can try to get to the local Walmart, but I was downtown. There weren't any close by. The closest game store I could find was a nice little uh, shop called Blue Highway Games. And I figured, okay, well, th they'll have Scrabble right there, a game store. And I go in there knowing nothing about the <laughs> modern designer world of board games. This was in 2009, I think, or 2010. And I, you know, I go, oof. What is all of this? I expected some Warhammer and some Magic the Gathering and lots of Monopoly. And I, I didn't even know what to look for. I found the copy of Travel Scrabble I came for. I go to pay for it, and the guy said, uh, you don't want this. <laughs> tell me tell me about yourself. What's your situation? What's your story? And after we do back and forth, he uh, sells me Pandemic. And that week that we spent on the road, our fondest memories are not going to Mont-Saint-Michel and um, having crepes in Paris. It was getting back to our little camper van every night and playing another game of Pandemic over fluorescent light and finding another way to lose. Every night. We found, oh, we can lose this way too. And it was amazing. It was so eye-opening for us. We had no idea. And when we came back, I discovered Board Game Geek and just took it from there. 
That sounds somewhat familiar to my <laughs> background of stumbling on a uh, board game store in a mall. And because we, uh, my ex and I had just moved to Denver and it was going to become winter and we weren't big on outdoor activities yet. Mm. It was like, what are we going to do during the winter? So I came by this board game store and this is around 2012, I think, had no idea that this world of board games existed. And I ended up spending, or we spent two hours in the store, just looking at all these games in the back (laughs) of the boxes, being all wide eyed and being like, I can't believe this. And ended up buying Arkham Horror, uh, Carcassonne, and I think maybe Twilight Struggle because I had stumbled on no, Twilight Struggle came later. Uh, okay, because yeah. it was the number that's, one. That's rated not a game. good entry. Well, yeah. no, it was the number one rated game on BGG, and At so time, I was sure. like, "Oh, it must be must be amazing." And then I was like, "This is, oh my, this is involved." <laughs> I wow, but yeah, and and so very similar to me. So that's very cool. I didn't know that about you. That's uh, oh yeah, that's yeah. a really cool background. Yeah, it's it's a series of coincidences. If I had a rental car, I might have driven to Walmart and not gone to Blue Highway Games, which just happened to be closer. Um, if somebody else had been working that day and just sold me the Scrabble, my life would be radically different. Also, the guy, he narrowed it down to two games, either Pandemic or Red November. I don't know if you know Red yep, November. Yep, yep, yep. The and submarine I almost, game. Yeah, yeah the, which at the time came in a super tiny little box, and that was the main thing. It's like, well, you can kind of semi-cooperatively play it, and it'd be tiny for your camper van. If I picked up red november instead of pandemic i don't think i'd be here today what yeah. what might have been that's crazy yes. huh how that ends up working out that's really cool i had no idea good stuff yeah all right so what's going on uh there in your neck of the woods uh lately anything exciting going on uh do you mean in in my in my humble township or do you mean oh, in rotto land in rotto land there you go uh, well, you know, this is the busiest time of the year of uh, with Essen coming up. I mean, it's why we are here together right. for this particular episode. Last month was absolutely insane. I think I ended up playing, uh, learning, playing, and filming something about 30 games. That's like a game a day. Wow. And, you know, and, and that's in part because, uh, you know, the buildup to Essen this month is almost worse because... Why can't Essen come on the 31st? Why can't it launch on Halloween? No, it has to come on what? The 24th? Right. So I got to get all my coverage done uh, and then just like blow that last. It's driving me nuts. See, it's, it's, and, a, and it's a very that, stressful time. See, that's one of the benefits, but also one of the curses of what you do versus what I do because all my stuff's live. So if I'm not here mm-hmm. in the studio, uh, it ain't happening. And so, well, I, we're going to be taking a week off while we're at Essen. So I get that. So, and you're going to Essen, aren't you? No, I am not. Oh, you're not? I used to go every year when I right. lived in Europe, but right. uh, it's a bit more spendy to travel from an undisclosed location in the Pacific Northwest. It it definitely is. There's, there's that. Although I have found that it is cheaper to travel to Essen and spend the week uh, at the convention in the whole nine yards than it is to go to Gen Con from where oh really it is really because the hotels are so outrageously expensive for gen con that crushes it yeah so to be able to fly whether it's for me here in boston or where when i was in denver uh the flight hotel food the whole nine yards it's cheaper for me to go to essen than it is to go to gen con edward edward you're doing it wrong 
You are not um, abusing your minor celebrity status. There are people in Dusseldorf who would let you crash on their couch. No questions asked. I... I, I I tend not to uh, tend not to ask that. So this that. the guy who, as I recall, used to have a fundraising campaign that if you hit certain thresholds, we're going to roll a die and fly to somebody's oh, house that still somewhere. Happens. That still happens. Oh, you guys still do that? Oh yeah, that is amazing to me. I I think it's a cool idea, right? Our, Where was the last place you went? Our game day around the world. So it's actually only gone off once, and I'll tell you why. But we went mm-hmm. to um, Switzerland, uh, I think. Uh, Sweden to Sweden. Sweden. Uh, to Vekwa, and mm. I'm I'm mispronouncing it. All of you in Sweden, I understand. Uh, Vekwa, I think, is closer. But anyway, um, kind of in the southern part of Sweden. Um, the next one that we won, or that won, was just outside of, I think, outside of Toronto, okay, Canada. And he wasn't in a position, and he's really shy, and <sighs> said, "Nope, pick somebody else." Oh so, wow! Okay. So we did, and it ended up being um, our graphics guy, James, uh, who is down in Tennessee. However, about that time, (laughs) um, he's transitioning to a new job, and he's going to be moving from the east side of the state to the west side of the state. And so his life is in flux. So he said, let's table that, but I do want that to happen. So we're kind of on hold. So the next one's going to be in Tennessee. I'm hoping... You know, that obviously I've been to Europe. I've been to a few different places there. I'm hoping, honestly, that somebody in Australia or maybe <laughs> maybe maybe Vince or somebody down in, in uh, you know, uh, Southeast Asia, be it China or Vietnam or something like somewhere exotic. I think that'd be really exciting. Places I've never been. But you're not going to stuff the ballot box. No, I, I want not going to put your finger on the scale. I want to. Trust me, I want to, but I will not. Uh, no, no offense to Tennessee. None whatsoever. And hey, barbecue. All right. Hey, so, fair enough. Sure, sure. I, I will not complain about that. But I, I mean, somewhere, I, let's face it, people in general, I think if you're here in the States, it'd be more exciting to go overseas, right? Oh, so, sure, sure, sure. So we actually, uh, before we head out to Essen, actually, next week, we're going to be drawing a second drawing to find out where we're going to be going um, later on in 2020. For uh, we do that. Tw- we're trying to do it twice a year, so we're going to mm-hmm. be drawing next week to find out. Uh, so all of our patrons at the five dollar and up level get their name in the proverbial hat, and wherever they are in the world, if they're outside of eight hours driving, if they're within eight hours driving, we'll do that, but we'll draw another name because we can drive ah, there and no sure, 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 sure. Yeah, um, but anyway, so yeah, so the, that's coming up next week. But uh, speaking of which, um. So we're coming into the second winter that I will have spent here in Boston. And I find it so funny how people are like, oh, just wait until you experience a winter in Boston. And I'm like, y'all realize I moved here from Denver, Colorado, right? Mm -hmm. And people are like, oh, it's so bad in Boston. I'm like, it was nine degrees two days ago in Denver and it snowed. (laughs) We've had rain. It's fall Mm -hmm. here. So I'm like, yeah, not a big deal. Anyway. You're not impressed so far as what you're saying. No, it, it, last year's winter was very mild. It was very understated. So, yeah, it's the only difference that I'm really seeing in the winters here as opposed to Denver is the snow hangs around longer here. In Denver, it's gone in two, three days. You can't mm-hmm. tell it snowed. Here, you can tell until like June that it snowed. So there's that. 
Uh, let's see what else is going on on my end then. Um, po- poker giveth and and poker taketh away. For those that are unfamiliar, I used to play poker for a living, and so I've been crushing lately. Uh, the last three four months, uh, playing grinding away at our local casino, the Encore, the Win Encore that opened up here in Boston. The last two sessions, um, I'm down like five buy-ins. I've gotten my teeth absolutely kicked in all because I tempted fate. And I said, the only way I will ever lose at a one, three game is if I get unlucky or I spaz out and just play like an idiot. Well, I've gotten really unlucky, uh, which has led to some less than stellar play. So yeah, I've been getting my teeth kicked in at that. So that's not been fun. Obviously getting ready for Essen, just like you, Richard. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, there, there's been a discussion going on between me and Jess about uh, the possibilities of getting a puppy. Um, oh, wow. I I am pretty hard against that. What? Well. All right, now. get off the microphone. Get Jess in here. <laughs> I know she's recuperating, but I don't care. I'm talking uh, to the wrong person the, today, obviously. Now, hold on. I would love to have a puppy. I miss my dog. Asher is still doing well. I get updates from the ranch that he's on. He's still doing well. Never misses a meal. I hear Um, Mm -hmm. the reason I didn't bring him with me is because I live in a three story apartment and the stairs at a 13 year old uh, dog's age would not be fair for him. Asher was a, was a greyhound, right? He is. Yeah. So he needs, he needs the space. No, see, that's such a misnomer about greyhounds. They are the great apartment dog. They are the laziest dogs you ever imagined. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Take them for walks. Absolutely. Take them for three, four walks throughout the day. But other than that, they want nothing more than to eat, sleep, and hang out with you. They say a greyhound that sleeps 18 hours a day is an insomniac. (laughs) <laughs> so they so that's a huge misnomer about greyhounds okay Everybody all right they're full of energy no they're super lazy uh but they're loving and adorable and i miss him a lot so i would love to get a puppy the problem is though that we travel and yeah. the idea of getting a puppy and traveling just doesn't seem fair to it and i don't want to be away from whatever this well you puppy can get is. one of those teacup yeah, no, I'm Put not. Put it under the seat. No, that's not a dog. I want a real dog. <laughs> Although I will say, Afghan Elaine's puppy is mm-hmm. about the most adorable thing I've ever seen. If you guys yeah. haven't seen on No Pun Included, uh, their their puppy, they they tweet out pictures. Most adorable puppy in the world. It's so probably just, led to a 20% bump in viewership as well. Something to consider. <laughs> there is that, right? No doubt, because <laughs> he is adorable. So there's discussion, but we'll see. Uh, the last thing that I want to mention is um, Vince uh, has started up the Secret Elephant. So our our Secret Santa, the heavy cardboard one, has started up. Um, signups are going to go on for about five weeks. So when you're hearing this, you have about four weeks left to sign up. You can go to the guild uh, over on BGG, guild number 2044, and check it out there. There's a thread over there. You can sign up. Um, you do not have to be a patron. You do not have to be... Anything, I imagine you would have to either watch the show or listen to hear about it. But other than that, be a decent human being and don't welch on your end of the bargain. That's the only thing you have to do. Send gifts and enjoy the process of being someone's secret Santa. That's it. That's it. So secret elephant started. That's all I got. That's what's been going on here. 
Anything else on your end, Richard? No, no, no. I think uh, you've given me the impression I'm significantly less ambitious than you. How so? I I, I just watch TV, play games, and film games, and well, sleep, well, yeah, and walk the you, dogs. What? That, that, nothing wrong with that. You a secret Santa? That's a lot of work. Well, I and don't more to the it. point, that's a lot of heartache. It it can be. It can, when someone doesn't follow through, it's unfortunate mm-hmm. and frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but thankfully. Thankfully, I think in the four, three, four years we've done this, we've only had one person do that. So there's that. So at least there's only one. Um, So don't be that person. Don't be number two, people. (laughs) All right. It's a board game podcast. So Yes, it is. So uh, I've heard. Richard, what have you been playing lately, sir? Ah, geez. Well, as I mentioned earlier, far too much, but that's par for the course. Uh, The ones I thought would probably be worth talking about, specifically because they wouldn't necessarily make the upcoming list. A lot of the things I've been playing, I know are fantastic, which is why they'll be in my top 20 anticipated Yes. So putting those aside... Uh, in the last couple of weeks, I've been really impressed by a few titles. One is the search for Planet X. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's on Kickstarter right now, actually. I have not. Tell me. Well, okay. Knowing your audience, uh, you know what people come here for. I expect there's a familiarity with alchemists. Yes. Yeah, which is an absolutely insanely crunchy worker placement game that is all about using an app to be able to do really deep dive deduction as to the alchemical nature of the universe. Uh, my wife, Jan, and I, we loved the idea of Alchemist, but it was maybe just a little bit above our uh, board game heaviness pay grade. And that's where <laughs> that's where Search for Planet X comes in, because it's got all that great, uh, you know, using the app to keep information secret and dole it out only to specific players type thing, but it just focuses on that. Um, There's not all the extra chrome layered on top. And as well, it's an incredibly thematic game because it is about the real life uh, astronomical search for the ninth planet of our solar system called Planet X. And in doing the deductions that we go through in the game, we are replicating what real world astronomers do. And it's incredibly thematic because, you know, we, we make choices on our turn. Well, I'm going to try and and scan this much of the nighttime sky. I'm looking for comets, and uh, the app won't tell me how or where the comets are. But the app will tell me, yeah, there's a couple of comets in that area. Like. Okay, well, that gives me some information about what I need to know, because I also know that comets always follow a particular style of logic. Uh, You know, comets have to be adjacent to uh, empty terrain. Dwarf planets, one of them will always be next to planet X. Uh, Gaseous anomalies are always uh, adjacent to each other. So there's this series of logic rules that everybody knows, and every round you get to app the app. Ask the app a question, and uh, only you get to hear the answer. And so you're frantically making notes like crazy. But every once in a while, fairly regularly, everybody around the table is called upon to present a hypothesis about, well, I think in Sector 13, it's probably empty. Or I think there's a dwarf planet there. But everybody does it in secret. And a few rounds after that, they are all revealed. And um, through a peer review process where the app says, well, you're wrong. I'm not telling you what's there, but it's not a dwarf planet. And now everybody knows that because I hypothesize there's a dwarf planet in Sector 13 and I was wrong, uh, everybody can cross off one of the things that's in that area. And that might be enough for somebody else to make that, oh, then it's got to be a gas comet. It was one of those two two things. Um, And... Uh, And you're forced to do this. You are forced to share your hypotheses because if you get it right, 
That's how you score your points. And so often you'll be in a situation where, okay, I know exactly what's in this. And I could say that, yes, I know there's a dwarf planet in Sector 13, but that means in two rounds, everybody else will know it too. And yes, I'll get a couple of points. But if I use this opportunity to try to, well, I think there's a comet over there in Sector 3. And if I get it right, great, it's points. But if I get it, if I if I find out it's not, that's the last thing I need to know because that'll tell me where planet X is, the, the ninth planet, and I'll win this game. So there's a surprising amount going on. You strip away all the complexity uh, of the worker placement of, of alchemists and you leave the deep, rich deduction that could only happen with an app. And you've got something really special. I, okay. I See, here, the thing is, like, alchemist is the one that I'm familiar with. And alchemists... Yes. I love logic puzzles, and mm -hmm. there's a game that we played recently that's going to completely forget, uh, escape my memory on what we what it was. It was a logic puzzle board game, and it's a co-op, which is unheard of that I would enjoy, and I mm. loved it. And mm -hmm. I love these type of logic puzzles and the the kind of deductive reasoning and inductive reasoning that yeah, you have yes. to use with it. So this this actually sounds pretty interesting to me. So that was Search for Planet X. The Search for Planet X. All right. Um yeah, definitely uh definitely piqued my interest on something that wouldn't normally be up my alley just on the surface, but then yeah. the way you explain it, I'm like, "Oh, okay, maybe so." So what else? Okay, we want some more. How? Let's stay in space. And I'll talk about another game on Kickstarter right now, Cosmic Colonies. And this is from uh, designer Scott Alms, the Tiny Epic guy. Yep. You could almost call this Tiny Epic Meteoroid, although it's, it's not one of those really <laughs> small in-scope games. It's, it's a full, uh, you know, kind of light to medium weight board game. I know your audience. Sorry, folks. No, um, hold on. Hold on. That is okay, a total okay. misnomer. Because right, just because the show focuses on medium and heavy... It's in the title. Yeah, but, but we, but we, we, and everybody I know plays some light games and some lighter stuff because it can't go straight, you know, BIOS Origins to 18XX to, you know, game to get, you got to have some stuff in between and you're not always in the mood for that stuff. So it's all a right. Fair enough. Then I feel much more comfortable with my pick, and I will continue. This is a game where we are all trying to build outposts in, uh, you know, asteroids in the the, the solar is it the Kuiper Belt. And uh, the interesting thing is, it's a polyomino Tetris tile laying game where all the buildings and the facilities you can build, you know, you try to puzzle together and expand from a central area. You're you're trying to most efficiently, uh, you know, build your little facility on the asteroid. But it's driven by card drafting, and I'm sure everybody's familiar with Seven Wonders-esque card sure, drafting. Right. You know, I got my hand, I pick one, I hand the rest to my neighbor, and it's always a tough choice. Do I take one that I want or do I take one I want to keep from you? This flips it on the on that entire notion on its head because the the card from my hand that I pick and play, actually you pick, you pick and play two every round, uh, those are the ones I give to my neighbor. And I keep the rest. So uh, that gives me, one, a lot of control over long-term planning because, okay, well, I know next round I'm going to have these two cards remaining. So if I do this this round, I can f set up this next thing next round. But the interesting thing is, as soon as I know that um, Edward, to my right, oh, you just played the botanist. 
that's coming my way next turn. And so you have a lot more uh, strategic level of planning. Uh, it's it, the, the hate drafting can still be there, but it's so much more interesting getting to see what's coming your way. And then there's another element as well. The interesting thing, the game has a kind of family variant, which is not how my wife and I have played it, because if you play the full version, every card you play has a day and a night action that, you know, it's going to be one or the other. It's kind of like Gloomhaven, the top or the bottom action sure, of the card. Right. right. And um, you're going to play two. The first card you play in a round will be will do the top action. The second one will do the bottom action. And the interesting thing is, much like Gloomhaven, picking these two cards so that you can actually, uh, you know, string these two combos together is very, very satisfying as well. But then, at once I put those two things together and I pulled off some amazing combo, I then hand you those cards. And you know what to do with those cards now, because I've kind of laid out a blueprint for you. So uh, you're, you're, I find I've played a lot of drafting games, but I'm so much more engaged in this one because, like I said, flips the script. I, I'm going to get those cards you played, uh, as a, and you're going to keep the cards you didn't play. Maybe those cards weren't as good. Maybe they weren't as useful. I don't. I, I need new stuff. It, a lot of stuff works very nicely. And then on top of it, it's also a very nice uh, Tetrisy puzzle game that we're using this card drafting to drive because you try to get a lot done and it's impossible. You really do have to focus and specialize because there's no way you're going to get that entire asteroid. We so really want, liked it a lot. You want to go deep into one or into a certain strategy as opposed to broad out of yes. multiple. Basically, things. there are different mineral uh, deposits. And if you can focus on all of the red minerals, uh, that can get you a lot of points, but that means you probably didn't get much of the 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 blue or the green ones. I forget the colors. But uh, those minerals are scattered all over. So I'm trying to build, you know, expanding from like you know a central starting point, trying to reach all my tendrils all over the place, but um, driven by this card drafting game and a tile drafting game because a big part of what you do with these cards is gather the resources you need to be able to build the buildings. But every round, there are a tiny number of buildings available and first come, first serve. Oh, because that's the other thing I forgot. Much like Gloomhaven, those two cards you play have an initiative value. And we all reveal that initiative at the same time. And I thought I was going to go first because everybody can see I've got all the water and the energy I need to build that. That's going to fit perfectly. Um, but my initiative was a seven and you played a three. And oh, there went my building. What am I going to do now? Nasty. So it's not just being able to do it. It's you might play the other card first, even though it's not the one you want, just to be able to for the higher initiative. Exactly. Value. Yes. The initiative value really changes things up. Uh, you know what? I can go slow because I've got a fallback plan. Uh, sometimes that's fine. And so I'll, I'll play the card that's more powerful, uh, but slower. Uh, you know, the, the fastest card in the game, the cadet with a, with a speed of one has no special power. But and you might think, oh, this is the worst card in the game. No, it's often the best card in the game because this is such a it's such a tight, narrow game of such slim margins, which is as it should be, because right. trying to build a facility on an asteroid, there's not much up there. I it's very hard to scratch hard. anything together. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we were really impressed. I think you know, I played a lot of Scott Allen's games. Uh, a lot of them I love. Some of them have always said, but I think this might be my favorite game he's ever done. I was really, it's its easily one of, if not his best designs. And he's a very prolific designer, as you know. All right. And that's Cosmic Colonies? Cosmic Colonies, yes. All right. All right. Cool. Interesting. What else? Yeah. You want some more? Oh, come on. All right. Okay. 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 More. Well, um, 
a bit of a spoiler alert for what's coming. Uh, th- this this seems to be the year of Snowdonia. Um, it really does, doesn't it? And exactly. Because, you know, there's, uh, there's yeah, a there, bigger game coming out yeah, that exactly. we're going to talk I, about. I, I think we are. Um, Tony Boydell, I, you know, it, it, is, it is his year. And uh, I recently, just uh, within the last week, picked up a copy or got a copy of Foothills. Which, which I don't is, have that I am anxiously awaiting because I really want to play this game. Yes. It's it is great. It is great. It has that. You know, I believe it is subtitled a Snowdonia game. And I should, uh, you know, credit where credit is due. Uh, Tony is the is a co designer on it. I want to say, is it Nick Shaw who is the other designer? I, I should have looked this up. up. Thank you. I, I will continue to blather. Uh, it. it it actually, man, what would I describe it? If you're familiar with Snowdonia, which is a worker placement style game where we are clearing away rubble so that we can lay tracks, so we can build stations over the Snowdonia Mountains in um, in uh, Wales, in the United Kingdom. And this game takes that basic idea, but almost kind of Russian railroads it because now... I forget, there are either five or six individual rail lines you could be focusing on instead of just one master one. So right off the bat, that really elevates the game. And I, I gotta say, uh, Snowdonia is one of the greatest worker placement games of all time, in my personal opinion. So uh, to say that this takes those ideas and really elevates it is something special. So having several different lines you can build on, and those lines are very asymmetric the way they work. They're actually based on real, uh, real uh, rail lines in in England or in, in Wales, and um, focusing on one at the expense of another can be a big, big part of your overall strategy. Plus, every time you set up, uh, it's not going to be the same set of whatever it is, five or six rails. So you get a little bit of variety there. But uh, you know that's what you're doing. How do you do it? It is no longer a worker placement game. As part of setup, everybody gets the same five worker cards. And these are two-sided cards. And these cards allow you to do the same stuff as Snowdonia. Clear away rubble, Gather the resources, iron and and stone and whatnot that you need to lay tracks or or uh, build stations and all that. Every time you use one of the cards to do one of these core actions, you then flip the card upside down, and suddenly the card has radically changed its function. I don't remember the exact ones, but you might take your clearing rubble card, and after I've done that and I cleared a lot of rubble, this becomes a station building card. But it's a terrible one. The B sides of all these cards are really weak compared to the A sides. So I I flipped this. Now I've got two different cards that I could use to build stations. My original one that was strong and this new one that is weak. So of course I'm going to build a station. I want to use the strong one. But then that has become a really weak version of how to uh, collect resources or whatever it might be. And so you are constantly trying to wrestle with this little puzzle of, you know, you know, using really strong actions, but then turning them into weak actions. And a lot of the planning comes from the fact is, okay, after I flip this, I want to get this thing flipped back. So I have to do the weak version of this action so I can get my strong card back. And and that, yeah. I first saw this two years ago at uh, LyriaCon and wanted to get a chance to play it. Didn't get a chance. And everything I heard about this game, that mechanism right there, that every time you use a card, you have to flip it to the other side, which the first time you use it, that's great. But now when it's on that weaker side, now you're like, uh, I don't want to use it, but I have to, to be able to get it back to the better side. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really, really clever mechanism. And yeah, I have been chomping at the bit to get a hold of this game and I'm definitely going to be picking it up uh, while at Essen. And to answer your question, the uh, co-designer, it's Tony Boydell, obviously, and Ben Bateson. 
Ben Bateson, thank you. There you go. Yes. Uh, from Lookout Games, and it's a two-player only game. So this yep. is and so it's, it's right up our alley. It, yeah, it, it really is. And to be honest with you, it's funny for it just being a card game. It has a bit of a bit of sprawl to it. Like it's a it's a, it takes a pretty good size footprint for it being a small uh, card game. I would agree with that. Also, another thing that I'm very keen on, as is so often the case with two-player-only games, um, where the, the the entire crux of it is Reiner Knizia battle line, some variation of, right, how can I crush you, anticipate what you're trying to do, and stop it? This game doesn't have any of that. It is very interactive, uh, because like Snowdonia before it, if I do that early move of clearing all the rubble away, what have I done? I've just cleared the way for you to lay track. And you uh -huh. might get more out of this one, two than I do. But I really need that rubble because then I could convert it into stone, which I could use to subsequently build the station that we can now reach thanks to your track. So you, you're, it's, it's very much not cooperative, but what you do can assist the other player in which they actually benefit better than you do. But it still might be important for you to do that for your own reasons. Exactly. Yeah. Very CO two ish in that regard. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yep. And uh, Foothills is definitely one I've been uh, anxiously uh, wanting. So that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that uh, you enjoyed it so much. All right. All right. You got one more. Go for it. I know you. Do. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Uh, um, another one that just showed up in the mail is uh, Trails of Tucana. And this is going to be the lightest of the ones I've talked about. I don't know if you've ever played Avenue. From, I have not. Okay. Well, uh, it is Avenue. This is basically a spiritual sequel to Avenue. Both of these games are very bingo-esque in that every round uh, there's going to be, well, in Avenue there's one card. Now there's two cards drawn, and everybody has access to what those cards are available. Everybody's working on their own puzzle to solve using those resources, and by the time the game comes to an end, we see who did the best. You know, a very bingo-y type thing. Uh, the two cards that get drawn every round are landscapes, like a mountain and a lake, let's say. The reason drawing a mountain and a lake is interesting is because on my board, I have this hex layout of, of a land and uh, dotting the outer edges of this land full of mountains and lakes and plains and all that are a bunch of villages. And our goal is to connect all these villages via routes, drawing lines, um, because this is, it's not a roll and write. Roll and write, right. like a flipping right or something. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so when I see mountain and lake come up, that means anywhere I want on my little uh, piece of paper, I can draw a connecting line between a mountain and a lake. And I'm doing that to try to connect village A to village A on the other side, or I'm trying to make sure that this particular path reaches a, uh, a waterfall because that's something that the people want to see because I'll get bonus points if I achieve certain objectives. And uh, this game is really compelling because, of course, you know uh, since it's not rolling a die, you know how many cards there are of each type. And I, I know there's another mountain coming in here. And I need mountain and desert to connect. Because if I can do that, this huge, sprawling spaghetti network I've got all... I just need this one last one, and we're about to score. Please! Oh, please! Oh, God, it's got to be a fit. No, it's not. Oh, or yes, yes. And I mean, this game is constant giddy highs of elation when the cards give you what you need because you were able to play those probabilities. Or sometimes they say, no, 
you will not complete that road. And, oh, that could have been 15 points. It's three. Um, it, when you draw, does it have to be contiguous? Like, or can you just have little, you short, have little pass a lot over? of freedom. You can, okay. yeah. And in, in fact, actually, that's a big part of the game. Do you um, do a bunch of, are, are you working on one particular trail that'll be your big super payday, um, you know, and all your thought is devoted to it, th that can that can pay off well if the cards go your way. But uh, it is often wiser to keep your options open. If I've got roads all over the place, well, I don't care what comes up. I'll be able to extend something, but then you run the risk of never finishing anything. All right. Yeah. So um, this, this kind of it's a flipping right. Silver and gold is the one that comes to mind when I hear this in that, but it, it it's more Tetris as opposed to creating paths and everything. But I, I think there's, I think there's a place for these flipping rights, rolling rights, whatever that I I've actually really enjoyed a lot of them. There are definitely some that I have not. Uh, yeah. I, I blocks, I think is the one that comes to mind that is way, way too long and way too overstays but ah. nonetheless well, this one is very snappy because everybody's playing simultaneously this is a 10 15 minute filler with a fair bit of crunch and you know it is from the same design team as santa maria oh okay all right well there you go and what's the yeah. name of that one again uh trails of tucana all right uh something for folks to check out there you go all right yes. all right I love how excited you get. Like this is like it's 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 so genuine. I, I love this. I I I don't, and I wish I did. That's yeah. I I think that's awesome to see. Um. So on my end, yeah, there are a lot. Uh. You know, I'm actually going through my list, and the overwhelming majority of the games that I've been playing also. Um. We're gonna talk mm -hmm. about here in a little bit for the Essen list. So I, I will omit all of those. Okay. That said, uh, the big ones, uh, we'll start with the newest one first, and that's the uh, expansions for Madeira, which I know you also have yes. played. Mm -hmm. And I watched your video, and I, I got to be honest, I agree with a lot of what you said in your uh, final thoughts of this. So Madeira, 2013 Golden uh, Golden Elephant Award winner, our first. So it absolutely has stood up for the test of time. And I think Madeira is a fantastic game. The expansions, there's four modules in it. And I think that if you wanted and you're familiar with Madeira, but you're not familiar with the expansions, I think three of the modules you could, <laughs> you could introduce all together up front and be okay. Mm -hmm. It's the fourth module that takes it to a whole new level. So the first one is the asymmetric starting tiles, which I think absolutely 100% should be included in every game of Madeira exactly. going forward. Exactly. I think it's fantastic. The asymmetric start and kind of the little drafting aspect where if you take a, a better tile, you're going to pick the next tile later. I think that's it's such a simple mechanism, but I think it's fantastic in the way it's implemented. It's a really fun well. little game on its own. It is. I could almost see that being a little party filler game. And it's so much more compelling. I remember years ago, the first time I played Zulkin the Mind Calendar, I yep. thought, wow, this is amazing. I pick a few of these cards and it tells me what my my starting resources are. That pales in comparison to this little kind of push your luck. Well, okay, I'll take this weak tea because that means I'm going to get the really important thing I need on the next level. I was really impressed by yeah, it. Yeah, I, 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 as soon as I... 
so I'm going through the rules and I'm laying this out on my table and I'm like, dude, I love this. Like before yeah. I even did it, I was like, yeah, this is fantastic. Big fan of that. The second month, now I'm not doing these in the numbered order that they do. The second one that I think is easy enough to re-implement or to add into uh, a game of Madeira is the uh, the character tiles. So normally mm -hmm. there are four character tiles. The fifth one, if you have the promo or the mini expansion, the Harvester, there are five tiles in this one. And all they do, they do the exact same thing that the original ones did, except now they have little bonuses like, okay, you not only go to this character, but when you go there, you get to do one of these extra little bonuses that you can do. As long as you don't use a pirate die, a pirate die, you can't, don't get to use one of the uh, bonuses. So, okay, that was cool. They're, they're nice little bumps, ni nice little boosts that aren't game changing or game breaking, but they're they're little helpers. They're nice. They add a good feeling to everything. They also include the uh, Corsair, which is a fancy pirate that anytime you use this pirate die, it blocks off all the bonuses going forward for the rest of that round. Easy enough to introduce. Yeah, that's uh, what I was going to say. To me, the most interesting thing about it was, you know, the game already had a fair amount of interaction that, oh, I can cut you off. I can really mess with your plans based on, you know, the long-term payback schemes. That Corsair... Oh, I think I'll just use this one so that nobody gets these bonuses. Right. Oh, were you planning it, on doing that? Nope, not this nope. time. Uh-uh. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is there are there's a little pirate that goes into the city in a pirate ship that basically just gives you more pirates uh, throughout the game, which the expansion makes it considerably harder to get rid of all your pirates. Yes. Especially mm -hmm. when you introduce all four modules, as we did. So that's the second module. The third module being... All the crown requests or the king's requests, the, the goals that you have at the end, uh, that you complete at the end of the first, third, and fifth round, all of those are removed from the base game, and these are now introduced. This is probably the second most involved of the new modules, that all of them are different. There are no identical ones, mm -hmm. and they all have a little bit of a, oh, to do this, you need to have this. Or you have to spend that. It's they are all harder. Universally, they are tougher yeah. to do. So if you think the crown requests in the base game are too easy, then you just take all those out and you add all of these in. Easy I believe they're now called the demands. The king yeah, now demands. He, he demands, these right? Right. <laughs> yeah. He he he's less less uh less asking, more demanding. <laughs> yeah. uh, so those those definitely have ramped up the difficulty in completing those and maximizing those. Then the last one, the yeah. last one, I would caution everybody to introduce this one last. Once you are familiar with all the other new modules and you've played with them, this one is hard and it's going to add the most amount uh, to the playtime. And mm -hmm. that's the, the cards. So the cards, there are five rounds in Madeira and there are five decks of cards that correspond to the region one, region two, region three. One of them uh, corresponds to all three regions. And the last one corresponds to the colonies. And you're going to draft just a la seven wonders or whatever, you know, you take mm -hmm. one and then pass the rest to your left or whatever. And you're going to end up with one of each of the five decks or one, uh, one card from each of the five decks. So you have five cards and you must play one card at the beginning of each round. And it, it is a cool little benefit that you get 
provided that you meet the prerequisites. So it might be have three workers in the fields in region one. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, if you don't <laughs> want to do that, then you're not going to be able to make use of the card. So it becomes a game of, do I just punt and not even bother working towards the cards? These are like little mini goals, but they give some really powerful benefits yes. if you meet that. But it might force you to change your big overarching strategy to such a degree that it might actually hurt you more than it benefits you. And wow, the we had to reference the rule book a lot to be able to be clear as to which one, uh, what does what. Mm -hmm. And it's just, they're hard. I don't know any other way to put it other than they're just hard. I'm not saying unnecessary. I think they add to it, but man, it's a lot to throw on in your, uh, your first few games along with all the other modules. I'm trying to remember, you uh, draft, you, you get your hand of five right from the get-go, don't you? You do. Exactly. And that's what just takes this game from an 11 to a, to a 100 plus in terms of depth because the, really the biggest, most complex thing about Madeira was always trying to balance your long-term planning of, okay, I know in round five, I'm going to be trying to do those objectives. And early on, I'm trying to do this one. And this just adds that extra level. Okay, I've got this one that'll really help me get control of my boats. Clearly, I'm going to use that in round four. Um, because that's going to be the best time when I when I think uh, my fleet is going to be in position to leverage it. So you are making such deep plans to leverage these cards in a particular order. And as I'm sure you know, Edward, uh, your plans never survive the enemy. Oh, oh totally. And <laughs> oh, I don't have to pay upkeep. I don't have to pay wood for my ships. Well, that's going to be my round five card. Exactly. But, oh, maybe I should have played that in round two when now I'm short all this wood and I'm going to take all these pirates. Yeah. And it, yeah, you have to, you don't have to make those decisions uh, at the beginning of the game. But if you want to maximize your use of these cards, yeah. you need to be able to plan those out. And being able to do so, like you said, ramps this up considerably as far as the depth of the decisions that start before the game even starts. Exactly. Exponentially, I would go it so does. far. So say. I would say that the the uh, initial asymmetric starting absolutely 100% is my favorite aspect of these, of the expansion uh, of the modules. The second being the new characters. Those can be added in when you're new to, uh, you know, whether you're new to Madeira or uh, just your experience with it, and that's easy enough. Mm -hmm. the, the crown, the demand tiles, and especially the cards. Be patient. There's plenty <laughs> of game in there, and you'll get to it. Yeah, um, those are for game 51 in your Madeira uh, yeah, it, journey. It's it's a lot, but man, does it does it change the game in such a good way? And it breathes new life into a game that, in my opinion, still had plenty of legs. Exactly. Later. Yeah. So, it is yeah. super over delivering. Yeah. Definitely. So so well done to what's your game on the uh, on the expansion and everybody over there. So yeah, a uh, big fan of that. And the only other two that I will briefly mention is uh, we played El Grande a couple of times. The the granddaddy of area control. Okay. I not not very good for two players. So oh, fair enough. Played. Um. <laughs> We played it. In my opinion, it is a five-player only game. First off, uh -huh. um, I I'm just not super keen on it. I love 
area control. Like, Gasp. Dominant Species is one of my favorite games. But I got to be honest, um, uh, it just, it holds up. The game is impressive, but it's just, I don't know that I enjoyed it that much. Um, yeah. I think Going into age? That. Uh, no, it's not that. I just don't think it felt good playing it. Now, I did, when you can, it is very take that E, it can mm -hmm. be. In that uh, if players, so during the, the scoring phases, there's a first, second, and sometimes third place for area majority. So, you know, like if somebody has five caballeros in a region and somebody has four, somebody has three, there'll be, you know, first, second, third place scoring potentially. If you get locked into battles for first place, not much about that game feels good and is a lot of fun um in that regard and it's not that i'm not as care bear as you are richard but few people at, are <laughs> but at the same time it's kind of like the game intrigue which is super nasty i don't necessarily enjoy that aspect i don't dislike it but i don't know that i enjoy it and so el grande tends to be a lot more of that than I think I want nowadays, even though there's dominant mm. species, which, you know, those, those, uh, those dominance cards can be super nasty. Uh, I don't know. There's just something about it that just didn't. That's interesting. Are you suggesting you have evolved? Maybe. The, maybe, maybe. The eight maybe. years ago, Edward might have looked at this and, um, and, you know, kind of reveled in the, the scrum a little more. I, I think that's a perfect way to put it. I think I'm, huh. I'm, it's not that I oppose, uh, take that. I don't. But as long as, as long as it's there with a purpose and it still feels good, you know what I mean? And there's still enjoyment in, and it's not enjoyment for crushing your foes beneath the soles of your feet. <laughs> um, yeah. Overall, just El Grande, it holds up. It's an amazing design, but it's just maybe just not for me anymore. So there's that. And the All last right. one that I'll bring up was Leaving Earth. Okay. So leaving Earth is you run a space program uh, from one of four countries, U.S., uh, the Soviets, I think China and one other country. And you're trying to build your rockets and be able to complete missions. Now, I played it as a solo game. I played it a couple of times and I was a solo game. And it's basically a race of you get 20 rounds from 19... 56 to 75, I think, or 70, whatever. You get the idea. It's 20 rounds, and you have to uh, get a certain amount of victory points. And there are some amount of goals out on the board, and you have to score it over half 50% of the available victory points from those goals. And then it's a matter of being able to build your rocket ships and then test or uh, research these technologies, test the technologies so that they're safer and you don't have mishaps in space because bad things, obviously, if your ship blows up in space, you've got to start over at ground zero or uh, at step one, I should say. Um, and it, it's a lot of math and it's a lot of calculating and working your way backwards, which mm -hmm. is definitely going to appeal to a reasonable size of the listeners out there for me i enjoyed it i didn't love it uh because it is a constant calculation of okay i need to not only get my i uh, i have a uh, land a man on uh, on the moon and get him back to earth so then i have to work backwards on okay how much thrust 
And how much weight do I have when I get back into Earth's atmosphere? So then I have to, okay, this times that plus this. Okay, working backwards one more step, I have to then, okay, I've used that thruster. So, or I'll need to carry this extra thruster to be able to make it to the next step. So it's a whole lot of that. And if that appeals to you, then this is absolutely a game for you. I was kind of lukewarm on it. I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it. Um, How does it compare to the granddaddy high frontier? They are similar in that there is a fair amount of math. Like you have to figure that out. There's mm -hmm. there is randomness in that there are card draws. Like there are three outcomes. If you have not fully tested your research for certain rockets or certain uh, technologies, there is a, you know, anywhere between 33 to 50% chance that it doesn't succeed or it might never fail depending on what the random draw of these three outcomes could be. And so it, there is that randomness that high frontier has. However, it, it's much more confined. It's a yeah. smaller footprint and it, 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 they are very different games, but I also get a similar feel, but I enjoy high frontier more for what mm. it's worth. Now I have been told I have not played leaving earth uh, as a competitive game uh, with other players, but I've heard that the, it adds a level of stress in a good way that players have to be able to uh, compete against one another. It's a race for certain goals. So these, these uh, conditions that you have to meet, send a person to space or to uh, earth and come back or, you know, uh, discover, uh, what the landscape of Mars is or something along the lines of that. It's a race then between you and the other players. I don't know that that appeals to me because race games tend to not as much. Mm. Um, but overall, I would say if this sounds interesting to you, then definitely check out Leaving Earth. If not, if you're kind of eh on it, then I would say probably stay away because it does have a lot of math. It's simple math, but it has a lot of math in it. So there you go. And all the others we're going to talk about here coming up. So there you go. That's what I've been playing. As far as acquisitions. Now, I realize that you and I are both reviewers, so we get sent a plethora of games <laughs> here yeah. and there. But are there anything that you want to highlight in those regards? Oh, uh, yeah. There's a couple that actually just showed up this week, and I was kind of surprised uh, by both of them, which is surprising in itself because normally I try to keep a really uh, strong level control over what publishers are going to send. But I just got Aftermath, which is going to be the next game from Jerry Hawthorne, the Mice and Mystics guy. Okay. And this, you know, this is uh, Jerry Hawthorne doing another big Jerry Hawthorne narrative-driven, fantastical adventure game with uh, just oodles of character to spare. I mean, they're actually making a feature film out of Mice and Mystics. It was such a robust fantasy world he created. So that and, kind of reminds me of uh, what is it? The not Legends of Nymph, but the or the Secret of Nymph. Just because Aftermath, Mystics, right? um, yes, yes, yes. Aftermath has that same kind of idea. It's set in the modern world, and for reasons unknown, humanity has just disappeared. And at the same time, animals have become sentient, uh, or, so, or I should say, self-aware. They've you know boosted. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Sure. Uh, you know why? It's a mystery to these remaining animals. But you play a plucky group of uh, little furry creatures <laughs> trying to survive um, in New York. 
and uh, you're you're and you're quickly developing a feudal society where there's haves and have-nots, and you know trying to break into the uh, the soda pop machine because that will you know or, you know the, the snack machine now keep your tribe fed for a week if you can just get one of those uh, bags of pretzels or stuff like that, and um, using pencils as swords and and things of that nature. Um, so I have loved the world building of every Jerry Hawthorne game to date. Uh, absolutely amazing. That one and uh, Comanauts and uh, the, the Dream one. I can't remember the name of it right now. I suspect it'll be brilliant here as well. But every one of his games have always felt a bit too lightweight for me and Jen. So every time I go in uh, knowing I'll be dazzled by the world and the storytelling and I'll, I'll want to just dive deep. But the, the gameplay will always make me wish, boy, I wish my, my niece and nephew were here. Uh, because that would justify playing this game. So All right. I say I'm surprised because I didn't expect them to send it to me because this is going to be the fourth time I've said, yeah, Jerry's games just aren't for us as much as we love the idea of them. I suspect that'll be true for Aftermath. And then the other one that showed up is um, Cities Skyline. And this is apparently based on a very popular uh, app computer SimCity style game. Yep, I'm, not I'm familiar with that. You, yes. Okay. Uh, what I care more about is um, from Rustin Haxon, the uh, designer of Nations, which for my money is the greatest Civ game of all time. I think some might uh, agree to disagree on that. We'll but, just move on. Keep going. Okay, okay fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. But the interesting thing about this is it, it is uh, the latest in what has become a long line of SimCity-inspired board games. Uh, this one is cooperative, which I know is uh, a you know, point of no interest for you, but but there are I'm plenty of really people out intrigued there. by that. There are I, plenty of people out there that enjoy co-ops far more than me. So please, yes. yeah, continue. You, yeah. you know full well you're in the minority there, I think. But oh, yeah. I'm I'm just super intrigued by a cooperative SimCity style game where we're all working together and you know trying to deal with whatever. T I don't know anything about the mechanisms. I didn't expect this to be ready um, because, in fact, it didn't make my Essen uh, top twenty because, uh, according to Board Game Geek, it's only going to be there in German. I didn't think the English version was even going to be available anytime soon. So I'm really keen on it because, as I previously mentioned, I am the biggest of Nations fanboys, and so I look forward to saying, well, how does I mean, what is Sim? What is SimCity Cooperative? What is that? I don't yeah. know, oh. but I have to find out. All right, interesting. Yeah, it's I, I love city builders. I love uh, uh, Civ builders in general. Um, yeah. The co-op part doesn't terribly appeal to me, but I am that is interesting. I am. It's intriguing, right? How, I mean, how you make that work? Yeah. Yes. What does that even mean? Cool. By the way. Um, I just realized in my depths of lack of professionalism, I am only just now hitting record on my camera. So, folks listening, you probably just heard a relatively modest bump in the overall quality of my audio. Sorry about that. <laughs> it happens. I just looked over. Hey, there's oh, no red light over that's there. That's funny. Oh, dear. That's funny. It <laughs> happens. Hey, nah, I wouldn't say it, it's just it's just life. It happens. So uh, have you ever have you All ever right. recorded something and then had something go terribly as askew and then have to redo it? Um, I have literally lost hundreds of hours of content at this point in my yeah. career, having done this for uh, for eight years, and you know my format, I film in one constant, unbroken take. Uh, my videos often run an hour, two hours long. And when oh, over, and there oh, is no, almost wow. no worse feeling in the world than being like, really, oh yep. no, yeah, I've had that happen with podcasts, yeah. so I totally feel you there. 
So that's why I just have to have you with me at all times because I know you've got my back. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Uh, as far as on on my end, uh, really only two things. Yeah. Um, both of which uh, we're going to be doing uh, playthroughs of, and and both of which we're going to be doing reviews of uh, down the road. Um, they're both prototypes, but. Uh, Throne of Allegoria, the latest from Spielworks, and Robin Lee's uh, designer on this one. And actually, I want to give credit because I'll be honest, when I heard about this, I knew that Robin had designed this game and got it signed by Spielworks. I didn't know we had a co-designer, and that's Steve McKenzie. So the the latest here Mm. from Spielworks. Uh, we're going to talk about this more here in a little bit, so I'm not going to go too deep into this, but uh, we've played it a couple times. Um, and like I said, you're going to hear about it in a little bit. And the other one is a very highly pub- uh, highly polished final prototype, like a, a pre-production version of it, which is PAX Transhumanity. So Matt Eklund, Phil Eklund, uh, this is uh, the latest in the PAX series. Uh, Matt actually sent me his copy of it. And so I have his copy here sitting at the house. I've been told that the actual production copies will be available for Essen. I cannot wait to get that. And well, you're going to hear a lot about that here in a little bit. So enough about that. I think so. All right. So moving on. Um, As far as normally hunting and anticipating and all that, um, that's this entire podcast. So we're just going to skip that and move on to uh, (laughs) as far as looking forward to playing. And and so it was interesting when before we started recording, Richard and I were talking, we were talking and he was like, well, isn't that kind of what this show is about, too? And I said, yes and no, because you and I both have tyrannical schedules in a sense that the show (laughs) what you play tends to be what you need to play for your show am i right exactly i am a professional game player at this point i don't play games for fun exactly a hundred percent but there are some games that appeal that you're like man i really want to be able to play that more because i really enjoyed whatever that is and so i was like i want to kind of highlight a couple of those so what are those for you and for mine mine really only has really one in it and that's bios origins i've now played it i don't know three four times and i can't get enough of that game um i really really want to play more bios origins i can't wait to have an actual finished production copy of it for messing so that was my biggest one and the other thing that i wanted to say that i was looking forward to playing is the aforementioned intrigue we're going to be hosting a glory to rome stream of this because i'll be honest i don't think it's possible to host or to play (laughs) through a game of intrigue without the uh the marine and me coming out and cussing up a storm because this is in my opinion the nastiest meanest ugliest just most just nasty game I have ever played. People compare it to diplomacy, but can be played in an hour to 90 minutes. And I think I think that's a pretty apt description that at no point during this game did it feel good. At no point during this game was I like, ha ha. Um, <laughs> but I think it will be entertaining for people to watch. So we're going to be doing that. So I'm looking forward to it from that standpoint, but otherwise, yeah, this will probably be the last time I ever play intrigue is my guess. 
Yeah. And the swear jar oh, will it's, run it over. Oh, oh yeah. It's going to be <laughs> ugly. It's, yeah, nasty. So how about you? Are, is there anything out there that you're like, you know what? I would love to be able to play this more, whatever it is. If... If I ever have the opportunity, the number one thing I would always want to go back to would be more Gloomhaven. I have now put over 100 hours into that game, which is really unusual for me. I am three missions away from completing the main storyline of the game. And I've been like that for over a year. Wow. And I just recently got the Gloomhaven Forgotten Circles expansion, which doesn't just add stuff into it. It continues the storyline. And it's just sitting there mocking me on my shelf. So you just got to play three more, and then I'm wide open, baby. You got a whole new world to explore here, but uh, I got other games to play. How? What a credit to your professionalism, sir. <laughs> that, wow, I, I don't know. I would be like, look, show's on a week break. I got to get this done. This is killing me. I got, no, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't, but I get that. That I totally get that. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. that's impressive. Over 100 hours into Gloomhaven. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because we played um, uh, I, I, just over 50 sessions wow. of the game. Uh, yeah. I mean, there, there was a time when, back when I was in Malta, we didn't care what was going on in our lives, what was going on with the show or my wife's job. She is a very talented glass artist. You can check her out at jenniferham.art. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, I'm sorry, no, gamerglass.art. She changed her URL. She got gamerglass.art. Please, everybody go check it out. But there was a time when every Sunday was Gloomhaven Sunday. That's it. We will always play one game of Gloomhaven, which invariably meant, oh, we'll just play two, which invariably meant, oh, and let's just leave it on the table and we'll just play one on Monday morning. And then, and that was, that was like clockwork until she had to leave for a month because she had a glass conference she had to go to and she was literally gone for almost four weeks. And when she got back, we just kind of fell off the wagon and it's just been sitting there, just burning a hole you in really my shelf. You really should make a point to get back to doing that on Sunday's post-Essen. You really should. Yeah, We're I'm so serious. Close. Do, We're so you, close. You deserve that, Richard. Do it. It's like we've paused in Return of the Jedi, you know, just right before the uh, hyperspace into the new Death Star. We're just right there. We just That's... we just paused right there. All the ties are just zooming in right at that moment. Pause. You know, when folks like hear years. this, I think they're going to reach out and be like, look, man, priorities. You need to do this for your <laughs> sake. Do this. So, yeah, that's Indeed. awesome. All right. So there we go. Richard, you ready to do this? Let's do this thing. All right. Top 20 SN preview show. Now, that's a bit of a misnomer because we're going to both have our own top 20 list. However, we did set up some rules, and this is actually going to be a total of three different lists. So the top 20, the rules that you and I actually discussed when we were going through this, we agreed on, if you will, some ground rules for this. Yes. Mm -hmm. First off, no demo only. So these have to be available for purchase at Essen. Now, obviously, something might come up. Hey, they didn't make the show or whatever. But to the best of our knowledge, these are going to be available for purchase. 
More to the point, to the best of uh, W. Eric Martin's knowledge, the head news guy of Board Game Geek, right? Which who is we both owe, we all owe a debt of gratitude to I for putting say. together this this huge list that has yes. uh, over a thousand games, however many it is. Now, you and I take it upon ourselves to go through the entire list and go through um, how this goes. And actually. I think it would be interesting before we get started to kind of talk about how we went about, or we could do it at the very end, I think would be better, uh, to talk about how we went about um, figuring out our list, if you're willing to do so. Sure. Um, So, must be available for purchase, and we also agreed no expansions. So, Mm -hmm. this is base game, core game of whatever it is. However, as I mentioned, this is going to be three lists. It's going to be a top 20 available games for purchase then each of us are going to do a top 10 demo only which not available for purchase but are available to check out there and a top 10 expansions yes and it's funny when we talked about this and i was like i have no idea if i'm going to be able to come up with a top 10 expansions i think i came (laughs) i think i came up with like 18 i was like wow I didn't realize there were going to be that many that I was actually interested in. So that was a pleasant surprise. So that was cool. Uh, Let's see. What else? Um, This will include games that we have played. Possibly we've played prototypes or advanced copies of. Otherwise, it'd be a pretty sparse list. Um, Plus, let's face it. A lot of these games that you and I have already played are going to be the games that people are going to want to hear about. Indeed. A lot of, right? Yep. In prioritizing, I tend to try to imagine wherever possible that, okay, no, I don't have this game on my shelf right now. And if I were just a a regular gamer going to the show, where would this fit in my must have compared to everything else? That's how I try to approach it. I tried. I think I failed that last little bit that you mentioned. (laughs) Like if I had no experience with it, how excited Mm -hmm. about this would I be? I I tried to do that, but I think I failed a little bit more than you did in that regard. Um, but we'll we'll explain it as we go along. Now, you also had a couple notes that you wanted to pass along to folks. Yep. Yeah. Um, one of them is the fact that we are going by Eric Martin's wonderful Essen uh, 2019 preview. I don't know if you're going to put the link for it in the show notes. I will. If not, people. Okay. Well, there you go. Go check out the show notes. He puts a ton of work into it. The the man is a board game industry hero. Um, but every year when he does these, there are always going to be a lot of titles on that list. That when you look through the list, you say. This literally came out last year at Essen, and here it is on the list again. Uh, And there's a myriad of reasons he does that. Maybe it's a new publisher. Maybe it only got a limited release. Maybe this is the first time it's available in a certain language or whatnot. So to try to make this a little bit more topical, we both agreed that we were going to uh, focus on games that have not appeared on specifically our Gen Con anticipated list. Right. So Black Angel, Sierra West, uh, the Teotihuacan expansion, stuff like that is not going to be on this list because, well, you've either heard it, seen it, something from us already. So we omitted that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, And also... As an aside, uh, as we talked up front, I've got my own channel and I've got my own podcast. So uh, while we're about to talk about, what, each of us, 40 titles, uh, I'm probably going to go over at least another 100 or 150 additional games that I feel like I 
have to tell you about on my next episode of the podcast, which you can always find at podcast.rado.com. I imagine there'll be a link for that down in the show notes, too. Yep, there will be. And in addition to that, because, well, it's my show and I make my own rules on some of this stuff. Even though this is going to be a top 10 or top 20 list, respectively, depending on which one, I also have some others that I'm going to mention that could have made the list that didn't for whatever reason, just to be able to put them in out there so that people can go and look them up. And we're not going to I'm just going to do those rapid fire as well. So by which Edward means he is weak. He could not cut the wheat from the chaff, and he's trying to have his cake and eat it too, whereas I have an actual list with a beginning and an end. But at the same time, you also have your own podcast in which you can expand on this. That's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> but yeah, this has been a Fair shortcoming enough. of mine from the inception <laughs> of the show. Uh, you can ask Tony. Uh, this has always been the case. So it yep. is what it is. Fine. You're right. I am weak. To be fair, if you look at my list, I've got a couple of asterisks. I could probably expand maybe beyond the... uh beyond the boundaries of the agreed upon format from time to time as well. We'll see how it goes. All right. Fair enough. All right. So without further ado, because uh, normally I would be gracious and let our guest go first, but uh, the heavy lifting of this game or uh, of this list uh, is, is mentioning uh, going first and all of that. So that's exactly, <laughs> uh, exactly where we're going to go. So here we go. And again, this list is I've done it's my anticipation list. It's not what I think your anticipation list should be for those that are listening. This that is, is very important. Um, and I tried to just include the games that I am excited about. Now, keep in mind, my list legitimately is probably 150 games long. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be shipping a pallet home from Essen of games that I'm picking up for the show from Essen. So the top 20 is still really strong, regardless of where it falls <laughs> in this. So yes. with that caveat, let's get going. My number 20, starting off, the latest from Spielworks, designed by Robin Lees and Steve McKenzie, Throne of Allegoria. So Spielworks, to me, says, oh, what's coming out? I'm interested. But the artwork and the theme had zero interest to me there is nothing compelling whatsoever about those two things to me about this game so that kind of made it uh, (laughs) all right well we're gonna give it a shot and then we did a kind of a partial playthrough of throne of allegoria and everybody that played it was kind of not sure about this (laughs) we played we played one round and that was it. And then we then we had to go and play a different game. We were just killing time while we were waiting for some people to show up for game day. But then we actually gave it a true legitimate shake. And oh, wow, this was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed this. So, yay. All right. So Throne of Allegoria. It is kind of a recipe fulfill or kind of a goal oriented game in a sense that you're you're going not quite point salady it is a medieval game in which players take on the roles of lords or ladies of allegoria which basically means you're going to have asymmetric starting spots and everybody has uh, different tracks in which they're going to be increasing their tracks to be able to take actions on a given turn 
my favorite aspect of this game is the bidding mechanism in this game. Now, everybody has tiles in front of them. You have two zeros, which are essentially bluffs. You have two ones, a two and a star or a wild uh, bidding token. And these tiles, you're going to go be able to go out and place on seven different areas that you can bid upon. And uh, when you bid, you can bid, you bid one tile at a time. Obviously, it's in secret face down. So you bid on this action. Then the going around the table, you continue doing until all of your tiles have been placed. You can stack up to three tiles high on a given action to be able to maybe there two of them are zeros and one's a one. So it looks like it's a really big bid, but it's really mostly a bluff. And of these seven actions, you're actually only going to be able to take realistically a total of four actions at most because you only have four with values on them. The ones, the two, and the wild token uh, that can be a one or a two. So when you go, when your things you're bidding on are in game. So during the game goal cards, like, oh, when you reach these thresholds or you meet whatever this goal is, boom, you're going to be able to play it down and you're going to be able to spend, uh, create or score a couple of points, or it could be to get, uh, uh, action cards, which will help boost some of your tracks, or it could be to be able to take the actual main actions in the game. And then it's not the amount you bid that dictates the number of actions that you take. It is where you ended up in relation to other players bids, which will dictate how many actions you take. Oh, wow. So in the first, if you score, if you're first on a given action, you might be allowed to take three actions. Even if you're the only one that bid on it and you only bid one, well, you still get to take three actions because you had the highest bid. The second one can take two actions, but it can only be one of a certain type or one of a certain type, whereas if you're first, you can mix and match however you want with your three. Mm -hmm. And then if you're third, you can only take one, and it's only one or the other of these type of actions. Mm -hmm. And finally, if you're last, you might only be able to take one action, but only of a certain type, period. And so mm. it becomes a game of, you know that I know that you know that I know that I need to do this, or that I want to do this, but then... Am I actually going to go hard on this or am I going to make it a bluff? And it becomes that whole playing the other players that I find fascinating. And one other mini aspect of the game is that one of the actions to be able to get those cards, to be able to boost those tracks is the uh, I cut you choose mechanism to where, okay, if you're last, there are five cards, you set up the, the cards however you want in groups of two a group of two and a single card so that the other players who pick before you have to choose how you, how you uh, set them up, but maybe you can manipulate it to where you're able to hopefully get the card that it is that you want. And there's more to it than that. But to me, that is my favorite aspect of this game. And it makes it much more compelling than to me, the artwork, it, the, the whole medieval theme and medieval artwork Artwork is very uh, subjective. So for me, it just doesn't grab me, but the gameplay did. And it's it's mechanically more simple than I thought it would be, but it's still made for a compelling game. So that's why Throne of Allegoria made my list and came in at number 20. Do you have any experience with it yet? 
No, I um I was aware of it. Actually, I know Robin, one of the designers, and I'm really happy for him. This is like a big box thing for him. Yeah, same. I I had kind of dismissed it out of hand because I knew it had blind bidding. And um, for my wife and I, blind bidding is one of our, well, I should say it's one of my wife's least favorite goals because of that whole bluffing mind game thing. She is incapable of it. And it's always very frustrating for her that I can always read her like a book and she's just <laughs> flailing around in the dark. We have had games in the past that feature this where she just eventually says, you know, what? I'm just going to choose things completely randomly. Because I'm, I'm so totally uh, incapable, and, and it just kind of breaks down for us. I'm really intrigued, though, by the fact that, no, you always get something. You know, you, you know, yes, as long as you bid higher than zero, you always yeah. get something. It's just a matter of how much. Yep. So then the other one, the other thing that is an issue for me, which I wasn't aware was even there, is the I split you choose. Oh my gosh, you want to um, make my wife's brain melt down as she tries to work through all the permutations. Because again, the majority of what that is is ante- seeing the world from somebody else's perspective, anticipating what they need, and playing them like a fiddle. So those two things combined sound amazing to me as a player, but I don't think they'd go down well at our table. Fair enough. All right, so that's why it's on my list and not on. Richards. Indeed. So there you but go. Yeah, All congratulations right. Congratulations to uh, Stephen Robin. Yes. My number 20 is High Rise, which is a game I covered when it was on Kickstarter earlier this year. It's from Gil Hova, who is probably most famous for having designed The Networks, yep. which was a very cool card drafting game. This is another SimCity style game uh, where we're trying to build the tallest skyscrapers possible by collecting resources and doing all the kind of Euro-y stuff you come to expect. Uh, the central mechanism that drives it is a time track, a la Glenmore or Thebes or Takedo. You know, that whole notion of whoever's furthest back uh, makes a big jump forward to grab something, and that means he that person might not take turns for a few while everybody catches up. And the thing I love about this game is what is so often the problem with time track games is everybody's very strongly disincentivized to make big jumps forward because they don't want to give everybody else a, a, a really, you know, a, a, a big, a, too much of a lion's share of actions. Um, but that's where the fun is. When somebody's just super ballsy, so I'm I'm going to jump to the other side of the board right now because I need that so bad. Uh, And I don't want to push my luck if somebody else grabbed me before me. The brilliant thing about this game is the time track is broken into individual segments. And each one of the segments of this circular track has, I think, three different actions in it. Right. So... Yeah. So if I jump halfway across the board, that means I'm still... Even though I'm getting that huge endorphin rush of, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm jumping to the other side of the world so I can get that particular building before somebody else does. Um, Everybody else isn't going to take a half a dozen actions. They're still only going to take two or three because when they move forward, they can only pick one of the actions in one of these segments before they have to move on to the next. It's a little thing. It's... It, it's 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 fairly subtle, but it has such an impact. This is one of the best implementations of a time track I've ever played because of this one little thing that just turns everything on its head. I I completely agree with you. I've played the prototype I think twice uh, in mm-hmm. different uh, you know stages along the way, and I've enjoyed my plays of it. It's it's one that I'm planning on picking up for sure. While I'm there, uh, and right. I'm a big, big fan of Gil. I think Gil is good people, and I want to see Definitely. good people succeed. And I'm happy to see that this uh, this did make its mark on uh, on Kickstarter. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And on the flip side, it's funny. I wasn't super keen about the artwork on Throne of Allegoria, yet mm-hmm. with High Rise, it has two artists that I'm a fan of, and that's uh, Heiko... Uh, 
Gunther and uh, Quan Chai Moria. Uh, Quan Chai Moria. And yes. yes, sign me up. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to see this in its final uh production you know produced version mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i'm I, yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to the game i've enjoyed my plays of it all right so that's high rise your number 20 yes all right so moving on now my number 19 which i'll be honest this could have been higher this is really hard organizing this in a certain order but <laughs> enough hemming and hawing and making excuses we have 1824 austrian hungarian railway this is the second edition of this one this is uh from o and o it's an 18xx game uh from uh helmet only or and lani orgler uh if you guys uh 1880 China and some other uh, 18CZ from Lonnie and others. Um, this is this is a three to six, arguably a two to six player 18XX game that's supposed to play in three to four hours. Coming out from Fox in a Box, this is the same company that uh, they did uh, 18CZ last year, and yeah, I'm. I'm really uh, more 18xx. I haven't been able to play as much of it as I would like in general, but that doesn't mean I'm less of a fan of the 18xx series. It's just time. It's just, it's what happens. Um, That said, it's a streamlined version of the original 1824, which I'll be honest, I don't know what's changed. I haven't played the original, but I'm familiar with, with the original. So I'm curious to see what has been streamlined and what's been changed in it. So yeah, I'm just, I'm looking forward to getting this, which means uh, if I get a copy of this, that means it's going to end up on the show at some point. So there you go. 1824 from uh, O&O and uh, Fox in a Box. And I assume you're not, have you ever played in 18XX? <laughs> no, I have not. 18XX to me is kind of like professional sports. And it's, it's this big amorphous blob of stuff that on the surface all kind of looks the same to me and I don't understand why anybody would want have anything to do with any of it and yet I imagine there must be incredible amounts of complexity and depth with all the different permutations and whatnot but yeah it's kind of in one ear and out the other for me fair enough not not that's why there's not just one game that's yes. why there are so many different games to cater to so many different people. Because I assure you, there are plenty of folks out there uh, listening to this that have zero interest in an 18xx title, and there are plenty that do. So there you go. So 1824, my number 19. Your number All 19, right. sir? Uh, I mentioned earlier, this is a very Snowdonia kind of year. And I don't know if you knew about this one. I'm going to throw out Lux Eterna which is a little card game about uh, our spaceship is circling around a black hole and we're doomed. We're all going to die unless we can solve the problem. It's from designer Tony Boydell. All right. And from his company and Frosted Games both. All right. That is correct. Yes. Uh, Very interesting. This just kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't know this existed at all until I was going through the list. Um, And I have to admit, I almost passed it until I saw, wait, Tony. Okay, got it. Got to go on the list because Tony is just a phenomenal designer, one of the best unsung designers of the industry, as far as I'm concerned. But that aside, when I started digging into the game, I like this idea. One of my favorite gameplay mechanisms is multi-use cards. Uh, you know, oh, I, I can use this card for X, Y, or Z. Uh, that, that is always just a guaranteed ticket to tough and tense decisions because the the design of these is always, oh, I want to use these cards for everything, but I have to categorize and whatnot. So here's the notion. I believe, sorry. 
Edward, we are working cooperatively to save our ship. And on my turn, I have four of these multi-use cards in my hand. I must play one of them as the thing I'm going to do to try and repair the ship. I must play one of them as the bad thing that's going to hurt our ship. I must play one of them as what's going to happen with our circling around the black hole. And then there's like a fourth thing. And so all these cards could be used for good or bad things, and I must use them all. Uh, and I can imagine how incredibly tense that decision must be. Because if they're smart, they put the uh, most powerful good actions we can do on the cards that would hurt us the least if we play them as bad stuff. Uh, at least that's how I would design it. And I can just see how this would be a very, very clever and tense thing. Where I can't believe you're playing that card! I don't have any way to fix that, but yes. But if I'd played it for its other half, it would have been even worse. And not only that, but the, the, the real-time strategy aspect of this game that sounds like it's going to elevate blood pressure and quicken pulses <laughs> and be the most stressful 12-minute game you've ever probably played. Exactly, exactly. And the thing that I like about this is I, this little blurb in the description on BGG says, events called glitches can be seeded into the main deck to make things even more difficult, as well as reducing the real time that you have to play from 12, maybe to eight, 10 to eight, etc. And I'm like, as if the game doesn't sound more difficult or, or difficult enough, but <laughs> adding to that difficulty sounds pretty insane. But it sounds like a like a pretty cool idea behind it. And I'll, I'm going to give it a, a try because I agree. I'm a big fan of Tony's games. And yeah. again, Tony being a awesome human being want to support him so i'm looking forward to this um but yeah so yeah when i saw it's six to 12 minute gameplay mm -hmm. that that is considered that's a very specific and b <laughs> very short so i'm curious to see how well that gets pulled off i am very curious too because Often with these real-time games, which I know are not everybody's cup of tea, the design is such that they aren't really full of interesting decisions. The decisions are only interesting because you have so little time to make them. Right. If the if the timer went away, this would be child's play. Um, the, you know, multi-use cards that have multiple uses. It feels like I haven't seen it, but it feels like there would be interesting decisions to make here, even if the clock wasn't ticking down. So I'm I'm curious to see how that works out. Plus, Tony is just the best. Fair enough. Sharp, sharp designer. There you go. Right. Uh, so what's the name of that one again? That is Lux Eterna, although it's spelled funny with an A Eterna. A, A Eterna. Yes. L U X space A E T E R N A. There you go. Yep. So that's yep. your number 19. All right. So moving up now to make sure I get these numbers right because I've had to make changes. There you go. Number, my <laughs> number 18. And this one I know I will pronounce correctly Trismegistus, the ultimate formula, uh, designed by Federico Piero Lorenzi and Danielle Tassini and published by Borden Dice. So this one, this is. I've been talking about this game since uh, February or March, since Gamma Trade Show of earlier this year, when we got our first chance to play this game. We were told that this is going to be the next big game from Danielle Tassini, designer of uh, Zolkin and uh, uh, Teotihuacan and others. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, I'm intrigued. And basically the, the gist of this is you're transmuting materials you're gaining uh essences and materials to then transmute them into different resources to then basically a recipe fulfillment or conducting experiments i gotta be honest this is one of the hardest games that i've played in the last while 
because I have struggled so mightily to do well in this game. The first game uh, we played when we were getting ready for our live streams, I scored 44 points. The high score was in the 90s. And when uh, when Rainer, who is one of the board and dice guys, heard about my score, he he couldn't help but laugh uh, mm-hmm. because I did so poorly and I struggle so much with this game. But it's a kind of struggle that I enjoy. It's a struggle from the decisions, not the uh, permissiveness of a game. So some games. Oh, you know, you're like, can I do this? You're struggling against the rules. This game, you're struggling about trying to remember everything that it is that you need to do your your plan your tactical decisions your order of operations that you're trying to do to be able to complete these experiments and to do the various actions that you want to do and i have such a hard time keeping it all straight in my head because Mm. there are a lot of steps it kind of in a way reminds me of a vital lacerta game in that he jokes, Vital does that, what, you have one worker. You play a card, you do an action, you draw a card. It's an easy game. Yeah, that might be the case. But in some games, you do something and it gets you victory points. In Vital's games, and much like also in Trismegistus, you have to work for those victory points. There are a lot of steps involved to be able to gain those victory points. And it's keeping those steps in the right order for what it is that you're trying to do is where I struggle. I enjoy that struggle, but it also makes it a very tough game. There is a little bit of downtime. And let's be honest, the rule book, not, not the best. Not, not my favorite <laughs> oh. rule book that I've ever had to fight through. You are scaring me. I'm just being honest. Um, there are a couple of graphic design uh, snafus that I would have liked that were a little bit different. But once you get past those and once you actually learn the game, the mechanisms of the game are not hard. And it's a very enjoyable struggle. Again, the kind of struggle that I enjoy in a game. But you do have to get past those things. And overall, I enjoyed my plays of it. And I think if it weren't for the show and always having to completely constantly evolve around, you know, oh, what's the next game that we have to go and get ready for for the stream or for a review, etc. This is a game in which I would want to play more. It's just a question of whether or not I'm going to be able to. So there you go. That is my number 18, Trismegistus, the ultimate formula. Okay. Well, I swear, this is absolutely insane. Here's a little bit of the process that went into making these lists. Uh, you know, Edward said he wanted to do 20. I'm fine. I'll do the 20. And I got my list done fairly quickly, whereas Ed's had some stuff going on. So it's taken him a little bit of time. Um, but I posted mine to a little shared Word doc that we've got. And uh, then at some point, he eventually put his up. And I went and looked at his, and I was shocked to find that completely coincidentally, my number 18 is also Trismegistus. Right, it is. Yes, yeah, it is. Yeah, just completely out of the blue. And this is not the first time this has happened. And when I got on with him today, I, first thing I said, dude, 
you basically went and copied my list, didn't you? Because, <laughs> and he said, no, this is completely coincidental. Out of literally the over a thousand games we could have talked about, we both put Trismegistus at the number 18 spot. Um, I'll tell you why I put mine, I didn't put mine higher, because the fact that it is co-designed from Danielle Tassini instantly makes this a must-play to me, because uh, Danielle, uh, you know, has put out so many wonderful games, especially when he works with his regular design partner, um, Simone Luciani. Oh my right. gosh, those... Those two together are just unstoppable. But even when they branch off and work with other people, they still produce amazing things. Here's here's the thing that kept me um, from putting this higher, maybe even my top 10. Man, I hate making potions. I, I don't know what it is. There's just something about that theme that is just such a yawner to me. And every time I see one that looks like it's absolutely amazing. I, mean, I talked about alchemists earlier uh, in this podcast. It's like... Boy, is there anything less engaging than putting random things together to make magic potions for the purposes of scoring points? I know it's all the same as building houses or cities or anything else, but yeah, uh, that was a turn off. And plus, I sh- full disclosure, I have a copy of it. I've had this copy for two weeks. I have tried on more than one occasion to get out that rule book and crack it and make it through. And I am going to get this thing filmed before Essen. I promise everybody. But, oh, it's scared. And all Edward has done is made me more scared. Sorry. It's... <laughs> it. I had a lot of questions. Um, uh, so here's one of the benefits of being a patron of the show. Uh, at the $10 and up level, you get access <laughs> to my teaching notes. And my teaching notes are actually uh, for Trismegistus are, are being worked on and formatted right now. And in fact, if you would like, Richard, I will send those to you. I uh, to am, in fact, a patron you. of your show. You are. Uh, you are. And so I, will, I wouldn't mind seeing them. Yes. So I will I will send those along. The, the rule book is not... Um, it's not impenetrable. It is by far not the worst that I've ever seen. I don't want to int- uh, intimate that. It, the layout of it, it's like, it tells me about this, but to go into detail, refer to later on in the rule book. And I'm just not a really big fan of that. I would prefer uh. to have all of the information for a certain action all right here to where I can reference it all in one place. But they chose to lay it out the way they did. But that said... There's a reason it's in both of our top 20s, at least uh, on mine, because I have played it a number of times and I enjoyed it. It's just a matter of, okay, you got to get over that initial hurdle of it. And again, it's a hard game from a uh, just a gameplay standpoint. It's it's a challenging game. I enjoy that. Not everybody's going to enjoy that. So there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, that was my number 18 and your number 18. And it's just fun to say. It is. Tris Majestus. It is. And it's way easier for me to remember how to say that than Teotihuacan. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So that 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 goes. Uh, I guess we're back to me then for my number, number, my number 17. I was unprepared. I forgot how these things work. All right. So <laughs> we're my counting number, down, right. not up. Yeah. <laughs> my number 17 is something that if you only told me the name of the game, I would have zero interest in. And if I saw just the cover of the box, I wouldn't really be interested in the game. And that is Zoocracy. It is by designed by Simon Haas, and it's published by what I assume is his own company, Haas Games. Here you go. Here's what hooked me. <laughs> Finally, 
The zoo animals receive their political autonomy and establish a democracy as their form of government. Now each party wants to implement their political agenda. Each player will lead one of their animal parties using a clever strategy and their best negotiation tactics to make it successful. Trust your animalistic instincts to win elections and hold political offices or plot and pressure the government from the opposition. In the end, whoever's implemented the most political goals will win. It's a 60 to 120 minute game and the weight comes in at a 3.0. I'm in. I, yes. And when you couple that with uh, the artwork is very kind of cartoonish and kind of whimsical. Well, you're bearing the lead there. The art is from the Miko, Mihalo Dmitrievsky, who is probably by far the hottest artist working in modern board games. Really? Yeah, I'll I mean, be honest. This, I'm is, this is the guy. Yeah, this, this is the guy who did the art for, um, you know, uh, uh, um, Architects of the West Kingdom and uh, Raiders of the North Sea. Every game he uh, puts are just riotous explosions of life and color. And uh, yeah, and so, yeah. I mean, just you look at the cover of this box and I, I, I think you're going to be tempted to pick it up. Yeah, it's it's I I'll be honest, that is not where I normally reside as far as that that those groups of games that you mentioned. But yeah, actually, I, I go through his uh, his list. He has 13 pages of credits uh, uh, yep. of games to his credits. So there is yep. that he the, is super in demand these days. The the board itself, it looks pretty simplistic, but it has uh, what looks like um, Parliament or the Senate House, the different seats that are available there. And it just, you couple all of those things, the game length, you take the, the weight rating as it's shown, uh, some of the, uh, the artwork of it and the theme on this. Yeah. Um, I know it sounds a bit off the beaten path, but I also want to try and highlight some of those games that are not going to be your standard splotter capstone, you know, board and dice though, you know, and, and, and all of those, I want to try and highlight some of these and this legitimately grabbed my attention and piqued my interest. So therefore there you go. It's, yeah. it's, it's my number, uh, my number 17 zoocracy. Yep. If you are looking for democracy meets animal farm, you've come to the right place. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what I had in mind. So thank you for bringing that up. All right. So you're number 17, sir. Okay, my number 17. Actually, okay, I, I am going to diverge a little bit, uh, as I know you're going to add a bunch of stuff. There were at least half a dozen games I could have put on this list easily that are effectively reprints, reissuings, updatings Same. of games that have come out you know, over the last decade or so. You know, I mean, Predaporta 3rd Edition, the Deluxe Master Set for Snowdonia, more Snowdonia. Key Market is finally coming back. Uh, Dale of Merchants, the new uh, revamped Castles of Burgundy. I didn't want this to be a list of of games that we've all potentially played a decade ago or, you know, get various states. I'm going to call out one. My number 17 is Glenmore 2. And, and I, I I could have done the same in on a couple of these. They did sneak in, but games yep, like Boss, Roads and Boats, stuff like that, not on here because they're reprints for the exact same reason that you just said. So please continue. Exactly. Glenmore 2. 
Glenmore 2 does punch through this list, though, because it is appropriately titled Glenmore 2. This is not just Glenmore with updated art in a and fancier uh, production. This is a true sequel, uh, because actually, uh, Matthias Kramer and a bunch of other designers who collaborated with him have brought the, the core, wonderful time track and tile end game, one of the best tile end games of all time, as far as I'm concerned. And they have added, I forget, there's like almost a dozen different modules that are all based on real historical or social um, issues in and around the Scottish Highlands. And so you can play Glenmore and introduce all these different things having to do with haggis or whiskey or boat races or um, William Wallace and the fight for independence, all these kinds of things. Um, But taking all that stuff aside, which you could just think of, oh, it's just an expansion with a bunch of new modules. The core game has changed in a pretty significant way. Now, I don't know if you know Glenmore. I would assume you do. I do. And I got to be honest. The reason it's not on my list, I'm very interested in this game, but Glenn Moore is arguably one of two or three games that the entire world loves that I don't. And so therefore, and I'll be honest, I have tried for years to try and figure out what it is about Glenn Moore that I don't like. But no, I think what it is about your brain that it doesn't allow you enough, to like Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> I, I realize this is very much a it's a me, not the game thing. And so mm-hmm. therefore, I'm excited to try this. It's one I'll be picking up to try and see if I enjoy this more than I do the original Glenn Moore. So that yeah. said, okay. please carry on. Well, here's the fundamental difference. The original Glenn Moore is all about placing tiles down, you know, Carcassonne style and expanding your own little neck of the Scottish Highlands to convert goods into points as any good euro would have you do. Um, But every time you place a tile down, you activate every adjacent tile. So the game features a lot of long-term planning of, okay, I've got to leave that space open because once I put all the spaces around that filled up and I plop that last tile into place, it will trigger this massive chain reaction of activities. It's incredibly satisfying. Other games have since borrowed that same uh, core idea, but nobody does it better than Glenmore. One of the fundamental struggles in Glenmore is as you're laying these tiles and trying to play them out perfectly so that they can trigger these cascades of combo chains is you have to make sure any tile that has a road has to connect to one main road. Any tile that connects to the has a river has to connect to one main river. And that really cramps your style. Makes it very, very difficult to achieve um, these very, very satisfying goals. And what's interesting is Glenmore removed the river. Or I'm sorry, removed the road. The road is gone. So it is now... Uh, strictly speaking, much easier to um, create perfect, awesome change because you have one of the big restrictions has just been completely removed. You no longer have to make sure roads align to roads. River staff to align to rivers, but that makes the game a lot more forgiving. And personally, on, on one level, I don't like that. I kind of miss that. I, one of the things I love most about Glenmore is just how hard that struggle it is. Yes, yeah, yes. It's an insane struggle and there's less struggle. But here's the thing that they have supplemented it with. No matter what modules you turn on, there is now a new type of tile that isn't uh, you know, a lock or a castle or a village or whatever it is. It's an actual historical personage like William Wallace or various other uh, you know, English and Scottish people of the time. And whenever you take one of them, you do not put that tile into your little tableau, that those personages tiles, when they come up on the time track and people want to rush to grab them first, that lets you um, claim dominance on an entirely separate board of Scotland that is full to the brim of resources and special powers you can unlock. And um, But you have to start in a central location and slowly build a route of historical personages out to get to all these different powers. So there's now suddenly this 
almost a complete game's worth of content that is working in parallel to the original game. And what's really brilliant about this, one of my favorite things about um, Glenn Moore is when you get to scoring at the end, um, one of the keys to victory is try to be, try to do more with less. If my final little Scottish Highland is only comprised of eight tiles and Edward went crazy and did, uh, 16 tiles, he probably scored a lot more points than me because he had more opportunities to create those combo chains. But he will then lose a lot of points because whoever has the smallest final, um, Scottish Highlands area they built for themselves, uh, becomes the benchmark. And anybody who built more than that loses more and more and more and more points points, uh, progressively more points. And so uh, that's always been one of the cool things because I love, you know, Jen, she's sprawling. She just goes big. And just <laughs> that's these me massive too. Things. Yes. Yeah. Whereas I just make these tiny, tight little engines that I can't leverage as much, but oh, it's so perfect. And now whenever you grab one of these historical personages, they do not add to the size of your Highlands. So it accentuates and supplements what was a good, but uh, you know, but not a dominant, uh, a tougher strategy to pull off in the original game is now much more compelling and more it comes historically to life because we're not just talking about generic villages and castles and whatnot. We're talking about people that I remember from movies that I've seen and stuff like that. Rob Roy is in the game and whatnot. So that um, really elevates it. So while I I hedge a little bit because I miss those roads and and the crunch they put you under. So much other wonderful stuff has been added. I think uh, it's fair to ca- not call this Glenmore Second Edition or Glenmore Return to the Highlands, but no, it is Glenmore Two. It is its own game, inspired by the original. But um, I don't see why you wouldn't have both of them on your shelf. All right, fair enough. And I'm I'm like I said when I first heard about this, I was like. Well, it gives me another chance to try and investigate and see if I th- I would enjoy this more. I am a little leery hearing that they removed the uh, roads because, like you, I mean, I, I think I'm I I I'm a closet uh, masochist in that I like that pain, I like that <laughs> struggle that these games that the yes. rules uh, force you to conform to. But that said. All that sounds really interesting, and the historical aspect that they added to it really appeals to me. I wonder if it was the bland theme that may have hurt, but I played this back in 2013, 2014 when I first got into the hobby, and so therefore... It just didn't really grab me, but I've always been a guy to where the theme can only accentuate. It's not going to hurt mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I still can't put my finger on why I don't like it, but I'm excited that, for this one. Yeah, that is worth calling out as well. The original, I mean, it's tough to make a game that's less visually appealing than Carcassonne, but somehow they pulled it off uh, back with the original. This new one looks drop-dead gorgeous. Just like, it's a real stunner now as a looker as well. So yeah, I'm super stoked. Mark, for number 17, Glenmore 2. All right, which brings me to my number 16. And, and it's kind of, before I get into that, I will say that it's funny. There's going to be games that are on my list that you're like, oh, yeah, I'm still interested in that game for one reason or another, but didn't make my list and vice versa. There's going to be a lot of that as we go along. And the fact that your and my uh, likes tend to be there is obviously overlap as you mm-hmm. people have already heard but there's also enough differences that i think that makes this compelling or at least i hope so we'll see so we'll, we'll find out I yeah imagine. <laughs> <laughs> the folks will let you know yeah for sure so my number 16 and maybe i did subconsciously put a lot of the games that i've already gotten to play down here at the bottom because i've already played them and i don't know anyway my number 16 <laughs> 
Cooper Island, designed by Oda, uh, Andreas Odino, and published by Frosted Games, as well as Capstone Games. So when I first heard about this, uh, the fact that it's Oda coming out with another game, so uh, Lagranha, Mr. Lagranha, yes. Right, Lagranha, but also, um, oh shoot, now I'm going to- The space game. Right, which that doesn't really help people who are trying to listen to this. Solarius <laughs> Mission. That's thank it. you, thank you. Also so, known as the Space Game. <laughs> right, obviously. Uh, I enjoyed Solarius Mission a lot. Uh, Lagranha, I thought, was fine. Uh, there was nothing uh, bad. Like, I didn't, it just didn't grab me. Whereas Solarius Mission, much more so. So Cooper Island, wow. I was I was excited to give this a, a, a try. And I'm still looking forward to playing it more. My favorite aspect of this game. So the premise, I guess I should go into that first. The premise is everybody is building up their own peninsula uh, on a island. And it's a worker placement as well as tile laying game. But the 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 twist on the tile laying game for those that are familiar with the fragger games game called antics which i have never played but the mechanism in this game uh sounded fascinating to me and this game actually uh took that mechanism and added to it what it is is not only are you laying tiles out in a 2d space like you would in a carcassonne or something along the lines of that in cooper island you're also building up vertically and the height of the tiles when you place a tile if a tile is say three high it now is three of whatever that resource would be whether it's mm. wood or food or stone etc etc and so as you vertically build up you're getting more and more uh valuable resources you're getting multiple of that resource so whereas a level one would only be one of whatever it is as you get higher and i've seen tiles as high as six or seven to where it's worth seven resources of whatever it is i think that's a fascinating way to add in a 3d element to a board game that not only looks aesthetically pleasing but it adds a way of thinking that you don't normally have to think in a lot of these games, adding a height mm-hmm. uh, relationship to it. And other than that, a lot of the game is going to feel fairly familiar. It has aspects of games that you're going to f- be familiar with. The income aspect from like a Terra Mystica or a Gaia project, you know, the open hand, it has an income phase. And then the action phase is a worker placement aspect to where you have everyone starts out with two workers. You can go out and do various things. As you, and then you're going to be able to build buildings, converting resources into being able to build buildings or build statues out onto the tiles. The cool aspect of the building of the buildings is it must always be built on the highest available terrain or the highest empty terrain. And that makes for a very tough decision because if you then spend your four stone to then be able to build some building in conjunction with spending other resources. That's great because you only had to take one cube off your board because it represented four stone, but you now emptied that now four height area, which now if that's your highest area, you now have to build that building that you're building on that. So all that building that you've done vertically which got you all these great resources you now lose for the rest of the game because it now has a building on it. So it's, it's a lot of decisions and a lot of planning go into building up your little peninsula. 
in addition to all that, you then will be able to, if you choose, acquire more workers as the game goes along. But there are two types of workers in this game. There are the standard round workers, and then there are special square workers. And these square workers come at a cost. You have to donate one of your regular round workers onto an in-game scoring card. So you lose that worker. So by getting a special worker, you don't get an additional worker. You just get a square worker, which then allows you to go on to different worker placement spaces, which are all better than the round worker placement spaces. The benefit is you now have an in-game scoring card. The detriment is instead of getting a, a third or possibly a fourth worker, you now have the same amount of workers because it costs you one of those regular workers. So again, it's that... Everything comes with a benefit, but it comes with a cost as well. And juggling those decisions make this a really compelling game. And the building up of your peninsula, I find fascinating because my brain is not used to working mm. in 3D and I struggle with it. But again, going back to that masochism aspect, I enjoy that struggle in this game. Plus... It has Cooper, which is Oda's dog, that hence Cooper <laughs> Island. I appreciate yep. the fact that he gave a shout out to his dog. So overall, um, if I hadn't played this, it probably would be higher. And I kind of failed in that regard that I tried. Oh, I'll say. I, it, Here's the thing, folks. I know. Cooper Island is not on my list. It would have been. It was on my first take because I'm a huge Lagranha fanboy. What kept it off? When I looked at Edward's first pass of the list, it wasn't there. And I thought, oh, well, I know he's played it. He livestreamed. I guess there must be something wrong. I guess I'll take it off. And I, then, I have failed all seconds, of you. <laughs> Yep. He is live updating his list as we record, folks, for the record. Just so you know. Uh, I did. I, I completely overlooked it because we've played some of these games. It's easy mm -hmm. to forget to include them yeah. on the list because because you're thinking ahead. You're moving to the next game. Yeah. Exactly. And so I was I totally dropped the ball on Cooper Island. So Clay, uh, Matias and Oda, I apologize. It belongs on the list. It is on the list. So yeah. I'm sorry. But yeah, that's why it's not on Rado's list. So I apologize to everybody. That said, talk about it a little bit, will you? Well, yeah, I'm actually keen on it, uh, particularly mostly because of the 3D building aspect. I've never played Antics because it doesn't work for two players, sadly. But there is a uh, older, uh, very, it's kind of light uh, area control-y type game uh, called Tuluva. That does oh, the same basic idea. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. And we love that 3D landscape building in Tuluva. But that's, like I said, it's a very lightweight, quick grab. Um, you'll grab the high ground and have the most buildings built before the game is over because it's a common thing that everybody's building to. I'm very excited about getting to build my own little one and those tough trade-offs of, yes, I would like to lock this building into place, at which point I'm going to lose my main production for stone. Will that kill me? I don't know. You, you mentioned masochism. Two months ago, I did my top 10 masochistic games uh, because I, I, I love more than anything else I, I you know I, I love it when a game beats the crap out of me right I don't want to beat the crap out of another player I don't want to attack anybody but I love it when a game attacks me right so yeah, yeah and attacks just from the constraints of the rules right exactly or, right. yes yeah puts so, me in a vice yep so Cooper Island I think is going to be a very very popular game I think it should be the only reason it's not higher is because I dropped the ball and forgot to put it on my list to begin yep, with yep, moving man. on your number 16 sir okay 
Okay. Uh, my number 16 is Orléans Stories, which is a new standalone version of Orléans. I assume everybody is from, at least familiar with it. It's a very popular game. Came Bag out a few builder, years ago. Right? It, it, it um, didn't create bag building, but it certainly popularized bag building. You know, the notion of rather than building a deck of cards and drawing a hand every turn, I build a bag full of chits that have different functions and every turn I reach in and pull out a handful and then figure... This is not what I wanted. What am I going to do with all these things I pulled out of this bag? What is wrong with you, bag? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, Orléans is great. Uh, we absolutely love it. And it's interesting, when I first heard about this, the way it was described, I thought it was going to be some kind of big, oh, it's introducing campaign, narrative-driven gameplay, and all that. Um, and a lot of people thought that, but it's not. It's basically a standalone, really kind of Orléans 2, because they have two new scenarios that... Don't change the core of grabbing knights and farmers and merchants and boatsmen and all that, putting them in the bag and then every turn pulling them out to try to leverage them. But uh, the story narratives, I forget what they're called. One is a, oh, what are they called? The First Kingdom now. and the King's Favor. Yes, uh, that they, because of narrative story uh, scenario setting, <coughs> fundamentally changes the rules. I mean, uh, the board looks radically different than it used to. And considering that the last big expansion for Orleans, which was an expansion, was Invasion, which had that same kind of notion of, hey, let's come up with a story that makes us radically change the core nature of what Orleans is without changing the bag building. That turned Orleans into a cooperative game, and it did a very good job of it. And considering how ambitious that was, I'm interested to see what stories does where they're going to do it twice in two different ways. So as a longtime Orléans fan, I'm very, very keen on Orléans stories. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it uh, It's not one that jumped out and grabbed me. Uh, Orléans, I, I enjoyed the game, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. Again, it just didn't grab me. So the expansion or the standalone that this is, I'm looking forward to checking this one out as well. All right. So that is your number 16. Yes, what's your 15? All right, my number 15 is... It's Pangea from Red Imp Games. Now, full confession, I'm nervous. There are a number of games that are on my list that I'm nervous about because for one reason or another, the games have really appealed to me in the past that fell flat for one reason or another. So Red Imp Games has done a number of games that on the surface in some way, form or fashion have appealed to me. Martians, mm -hmm. a story of civilization, the Lord of the Ice Garden, uh, an entity in Enclave. All of those mm -hmm. appealed to me. The rule book for Martians was an abomination. It was... <laughs> It was, it was terrible. It was horrible. So I'm nervous about this. Let me preface that. However, just from an aesthetic standpoint, like, I don't know how you are with this, Richard, but whenever a game gets uploaded to BGG or you see it on social media or whatever, and you see like a board or how it looks on the table, that alone can be enough to get me to kind of raise an eyebrow like, huh? What is that? That looks compelling. That looks very interesting to me. And that's exactly what kind of happened with Pangea. It has a, a board that looks just really appealing. Now, it does, it does look like it have some sort of miniatures in the game, which I could take or leave. Mm -hmm. But it's supposed to be a 
action point area majority type game. It says it's set in the Great Permian Extinction, which I'm noticing is a theme with a number of my games this year, but ah. I digress. Anyway, uh, over the course of the game, each player manages a particular species and tries to prepare it for the I- imminent ca- catastrophe by a- adaption, by adapting to a changing environment as well as fighting other species. Okay. That sounds really interesting. Plus the way the board and the player boards look, it just has this, this map with these uh, tokens out on the board and it's just laid out and it just has a very attractive and compelling aesthetic that makes me want to find out more about it. And so there you go. I, I wish I had a better reason for it, but that's it in, at its core. That's why Pangea is my number 15. I imagine the whole competing with other species oh, yeah, yeah. is why this has no interest on you. No, I, I certainly agree. It's purdy. It's a looker. I look at that board and I'm kind of reminded of Cyclades. Yeah, almost. yeah, I could see that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a different presentation, uh, but still, it, it's very warm and evocative. It looks like a place I want to go to, but I know I don't want to do what you do when you get there. Right, which, which is, is combat and fight. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, 60 to 90 minute playtime has a weight, it says, of three and a half, which is pretty high uh, if it's not a war game. Um, and it plays one to four. So yeah, I'm I'm definitely interested in uh, Pangea from Red Imp Games. Okay. All right, you're number 15, good sir. Well, my number 15, uh, you went way to the past. I'm going to go to the far future with Paris, New Eden. And in fact, actually, I did get an early copy. I just put my run-through up for it the other day. This is set in one of those post-apocalypse. It's so far in the future that nature has reclaimed the world, and we've kind of devolved back to Bronze Age humans kind of thing. Um, And the gameplay is dice drafting. And dice drafting is my favorite gameplay mechanism. I love it as well. I love dice drafting. Uh, you know, every turn, oh, all those pretty dice, which ones am I going to do? And uh, this is dice drafting with custom dice, not just, you know, one to six pips. So that's appreciated. But here's the thing that's brilliant about this. Every round, there's a bunch of dice that are rolled. Of course, I can only take them one at a time. Please don't take the die I need. I so desperately need it. All that tension is there, like any good dice drafter. But the dice are not just put in one common pool that everybody pulls them out of while we're drafting. Instead, they are spread around to a bunch of different um, outposts in this future post-apocalypse uh, uh, Eden. It was lush, verdant, overgrown uh, city. It's just beautiful. The art is absolutely stunning. And if uh, there's a die that I want that is over by the subway, that means I get to take the die and do what I was going to do with it, but I also activate the subway power, or I activate the library power, or I activate the uh, storage uh, facility power. And the uh, these are all good powers. You want to do all these things. The dice are good. You want to do them all. But what you will always run into is the die I am so desperate for is in the wrong place. Inevitably, right? Yes. If I take that die, that means I'm going to have to go over to the storehouse and I don't need any more food. I'm drowning in food. So do I take the die and miss out on, uh, you know, going over to the uh, mage's library where I actually need to get the equipment that I actually wanted? Or do I grab one of those dice uh, that I don't want any of those particular dice? And you know, throughout the game, it's a very quick game. You know, kind of light to medium. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm just guessing a uh, 2.2 to a 2.3. Uh, I have no idea what they've actually. Uh, I'm sure no one's played it yet, so it's hard to say. But that tension is omnipresent from start to finish. 
What you do with the dice, the dice actually represent survivors in this post-apocalypse future. And uh, the main thing they do is, after all the dice have been drafted and all the various location actions have been triggered, is, uh, what are they? There's medics and sages, warriors, uh, wild cards, and and a fifth type. I don't remember exactly what they are, but... Each one of the types of survivor allows you to build a certain type of building. Off to the side, there's a whole collection of buildings that can get built every turn. And these become the basis of your little uh, uh, society that you're trying to build um, because they give you access to more resources and more people and whatnot. Um, whoever ha- whoever drafts the most medics, in addition to whatever else you were doing with those medics, grabbing special powers and whatnot, whoever has the most medics gets first dibs on the various medical buildings that could get built. And there will often be the case where, oh my god, of those two medic buildings, I mean, they're designed really well because they're either awesome or they're crap. You're like, I need that medic building. There are only two medics on the board, and they're both in places I don't want to go. But I can't take that crap medic building. That's not going to do anything for me because I have a particular long-term strategy that's secret, etc., etc. And you're, you're just constantly bombarded with being forced to make compromises. Uh, you can't do everything right. Okay, I'm going to have to give up on this because I can't go and get more food so I can get that medic so I can build the better building. Um, but you know what? I will go over there. I'll trigger this guy and I'll get the baseball bat because, hey, that becomes a tiebreaker. Maybe um, if you don't take that other medic because maybe you don't value them as much as me, I might still have the chance to get it. Uh, and there, there, there's lots of ways to get out of pickles that you find yourself in. The rules are fairly simple, but there's a lot of depth in how you navigate this little simulation of the future. And it's just a blast. The dice drafting is top-notch. It really elevates the idea because it's not just about the die. It's where you draft the die from. And that's really special. You're amazing. Your energy at this makes me want (laughs) every one of the games, even if it doesn't appeal to me. Although that said, I will say this is also on my list of games to pick up because I, too, am a huge fan of dice dice drafting, Mm -hmm. regardless of the weight of the game. And uh, the artwork, again, it's kind of a, I don't know, almost like a, a steampunk cartoony type aspect to it uh the the artist i'm not familiar with agnes Riposche or Riposche. Mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. it's beautiful it looks really really good and everything you said sounds like i what i want in a dice drafting game so yeah, yeah i'm definitely one this is one on my short list to pick up so All there right. you go paris new eden yes which brings me to number 14 well you're a former video game guy uh, Richard, and this game is based upon a video game, a video game, a very, very popular, if not niche video game. And that is oh. Crusader Kings. I have heard about this game, both uh, from the video game side and more recently from the board game side for the better part of a decade. I think Crusader Kings is a lifestyle video game in which you can lose yourself for hundreds and hundreds uh, yes. of hours. Mm-hmm. And it is Have all, you done so? I have not. I have a good <laughs> friend of mine, so Brian O in Denver wanted to get me into this game and I desperately wanted to, but that happened after I started the show. And now mm-hmm. I just don't have the time commitment and I'm scared to get involved in Crusader Kings the video game because I 
this might become my my gloom haven for for <laughs> you in which i yeah i i don't have time to invest in it but the thing that appeals to me about crusader kings the concept takes place in medieval europe uh, the essence of the game is it's not just you building up your kingdom it is about over the course of generations and you don't know how it, it's about the the intermarrying of families and making sure that your offspring will be able to continue your legacy and mm. you don't always know if your offspring are going to be worthy of doing so you know you uh, to take it to a uh a ancient rome you know you don't know if this is going to be uh you know a nero type or if it's going to be a a caesar type offspring and so your goal in this game it's it's a huge dudes on a map game however the concept the focus on the game is on characters intrigue and drama which to me sounds like a lot more so than the combat that a lot of these dudes on a map type game will focus on. And the description, it has a ton of pictures on BGG, but the description says in the game, your goal is to spread your influence over medieval Europe and lead your dynasty to triumph over its rivals. To do that, you need to groom your family over the generations, build and develop your dominion, be shrewd in the realm of diplomacy and intrigue, and use your vassals wisely to mm. grow your wealth and military power, while also at the same time fulfilling your duty to partake in the Crusades to the Holy Land. This sounds <laughs> amazing. And I'm always hesitant whenever I hear a video game turned into a board game, even though nowadays they've gotten a whole lot better yes, at definitely. that. Uh, that said, it's a three to five player game first off. And it's, it says it's best with five, which is going to limit the audience, which is also going to limit. I love games like mega Civ uh, and advanced civilization and the, the games like that. The problem is being able to get that many people together to be able to play a long involved game, which the time length on this says it's about three hours. I wonder how limiting that's going to be. So that's why it's not higher on my list. But that said, man, this scratch is a whole lot of itches for me. It looks amazing. It just sounds fantastic, but we'll see how it is. So Crusader Kings designed by, and I'm going to butcher these, um, uh, Tomas Harnstam, Niels Carlin, and what's interesting to me, Yoon Munker. So Yoon Munker, he is one of the, he's the lead designer at Ion Game Design slash Sierra Madre. So all oh. of the BIOS and all the PAX games. So to see his name attached to this only adds to my anticipation and excitement for that. And this is coming from Ion Game Design, Paradox Interactive, and Free Legan, which is a publisher I'm not familiar with. But a lot of reasons for me to be excited about this, but does it end up living up to the legacy that the Crusader King video game would be? <laughs> Who knows? So there you go. My number 14, Crusader Kings. Nah. You say it scratches itches. From your description, it makes me itchy. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. There you go. <laughs> I like that. The, the dynasty thing. That's the most intriguing thing you mentioned. I think it probably is for you as well. Uh, agreed. It is. Because yeah. dudes on a map, dudes on a map, whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, in We've some, duded those maps right, before. Exactly. Yes. But that aspect of this definitely has me uh, excited. 
Okay, well, let's go from a big heavy dudes on a map to a nice, simple, light walking in province. Uh, this is a, a very tiny little card game that is all about stacking cards together in kind of a jigsaw-like uh, 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 style. Uh, think... Honshu, or Hanging Gardens, or, uh, you know, there, there's several games like this. And the reason it's on the list, there's two. One, my wife adores that. Basically treating a card that has a, a four, a two by two or a two by three grid of images, and you're supposed to stack them on top of each other, covering some things with other things, slipping things under, you know, that, that kind of, making a jigsaw puzzle out of cards. My wife just Oh, every time we see one of those, she needs to play it. But the other reason is this is from a Taiwanese publisher and designer that last year gave us the incredibly excellent Walking in Murano. I was absolutely blown away. This was also a very small, tiny, portable little card game that was all about drafting to build up uh, colorful house fronts in Murano. This is now a small, portable little card game that is building up colorful fields of flowers. So my wife is going to absolutely love the gameplay, and I I cannot stress how blown away I was by Walking in Murano. It was either Murano or Burano. I Burano. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, which so I believe this is probably going to be a walking in series that they're working on, and probably every year we'll get another lovely European city with another new gameplay mechanism driving the whole thing. Last year, drafting and tiling. This year, puzzling cards together. And I, yeah, I, 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 my wife would not forgive me if she knew of this existence and I didn't bring it back. Well, there Walking you go. In province. All right. Yeah. The, the, these these type of games from the uh, Emperor S four, who's the the publisher. There's a niche for these that I too enjoy these, and I didn't. I skipped the Walking and Burano last year because. Burano, I had such high hopes for the actual main oh, game no. <laughs> for Burano, and it was such a letdown a few years ago that I was just mm. like, no, I don't want no. And so it sounds like I missed out. You didn't want flashbacks. Right. And so now, now you're like, and the fact that the whole walking in uh, kind of theme is being carried out over multiple years. I appreciate that. And yeah, that these, is attractive too. And yeah. these little 30 minute games, there's absolutely a place for these games for on most of our tables. So yeah, yeah. I, I, it's on my list of games to pick up uh, for sure. So there you and go. It's interesting. I, sh I should mention since uh, we're on the topic, walking in Burano is actually, uh, showing up at Essen this year as well. It was in the geek list. It's one of the ones that I would have put on the list, except I said I'm not putting out on stuff that I've already covered in previous lists. Uh, it's showing up there because it has been picked up by publisher AEG and given a second edition that includes additional cards, additional characters with special powers and whatnot. So uh, fans of Walking In have more than just province to go walking for this year. Excellent. All right. Good to know. So that is your number 14, which brings me to my number 13. Sticking with the medieval theme here, we have Medieval Realms, uh, designed by Carlos Michan Amato, I believe. And the publisher is Lost Games Entertainment, which I'll be honest, I'm not familiar with. So I didn't do any research onto whether or not they had done other games, which apparently going and looking, they have. I will. You can talk. I'll look. All right, so medieval. We can tag team it. Uh, medieval realms, two to five economic euro. Okay, that already got my attention first and foremost. And medieval times, 
not really my cup of tea, not really my thing. However, economic Euro, uh, everybody takes on the role of a medieval king where you make uh, decisions to develop your own realm. Uh, so the game is played over two different phases. It says the first one, it has uh, secret uh, placing of your leader. So it has some secret deployment aspect, which I can take or leave. However, the really interesting part of this is the second phase. Players take cards from the row using resources from where they played their leader. And there are 10 different types of cards, et cetera, et cetera, and three different card mechanisms, be it bidding, cash in hand, or majority. So different aspects of this are going to come into play depending on where these cards are in the given areas. And all that sounds really compelling to me. The board looks interesting from a i think uh what do you call a uh, tabletopia so they have like a a 3d version of it mm-hmm. i guess on tabletopia and it looks interesting just the different areas uh the different cards and the different tracks in which you're going to be building up a lot of it just looks really interesting to me uh I, more than that i don't know other than looking at the pictures that's pretty much Wow, you are definitely swinging blind there. On a lot of these, actually, I am because I try. Essen for me is such a this is my Christmas. Legitimately, (laughs) that I'm not kidding. This is the most excited I get the entire year is for what is now these six days for me because we go Tuesday through Sunday. And the reason that is, is because this is where the majority of the games that we feature are going to come from. And I, there, there's definitely a part of me that really wants to dig in ahead of time and be like, yes, this is it. But there's also because of the fact that this is, my Christmas, I like some surprises. And so I try not to dig too hard into these in some regards because I want that surprise. Mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. that element mm-hmm. of, even though it's my profession, I still want to take my enjoyment in it. And so from an aesthetic as well as a mechanical or a mechanism standpoint, this all sounds so good. So I'm good with that. Anything more than that, after I pick it up and I delve into it, then I'll be able to give more thoughts on it at that point. But as it is, that's kind of how I treat a lot of this. And so it's exciting for me to do it that way. So there you go. Ah, well, I did look up the designer publisher, which are basically intertwined. And uh, the Orc Father and Royal Hospital were their other big games of note in okay. the past. All right. And I personally am not familiar with either of them, so I wish you uh, good luck in the uh, Great Blue Beyond. All right, there you go. So Medieval Realms, my number right. 13. So uh, my number 13, by contrast, is one I've actually played. So I can speak about it with great confidence and uh, security as to its gameplay. It is called Clip Cut Parks. And don't worry, folks, this is probably about the lightest I'm going to get. 
Now I started out moderately medium. I'm getting a little bit lighter. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna wait back up when we get to the top ten. But clip cut parks do not be deceived. This is there is a surprising amount of depth here. This is not a roll and write. This is a roll and cut or roll and snip game because instead of coming with pencils, it comes with scissors. Everybody gets uh, you know the same type of scissors you had in kindergarten. You know, those little safety ones with the rounded edges and whatnot. And um, What's going to happen is every round, a die is rolled that tells everybody at the same time how many snips and how long the snips they must make into a sheet of paper that is unique to them. The sheet of paper is a colorful hodgepodge of, of different colored squares that represent different types of buildings and whatnot. And every player has in front of them objective cards that they are trying to fill in to score points as fast as possible. And they're like, little, oh, I need a Tetris T to fill in to finish this and get five points. Or I need a, you know, a, a, a little S-shaped thing. Uh, so basically, this is a polyolimino Tetris-style game, but instead of drawing them, you are literally building these Tetris pieces by snipping away at your big sheet of paper. So you, the dice might tell you, you have to make two snips that are three blocks long. And you're like, okay, but I need to make a snip that's one block long, because if I can just make a single snip here, uh, this little piece that I've been working on for half the game will fall off and become this awesome um, you know, three-tiered Tetris piece that will fit exactly... But the die won't give me that. It keeps making me um, snip three or two. And I'm running out of paper to snip. Uh, you have to be really, really clever about how you snip and think a fair ways into the distance. Because what will often happen is, okay, well, I didn't get quite. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to snip over here. And then you, oh, I just snipped half of my thing I've been working on for this entire game. It just fell off and it's the wrong piece. It won't fit any of my objective cards. At which point you very painfully have to crumple that piece up. And it's literally called a crumple, and it's a tiebreaker. Whoever has the most crumples, if the game ties, loses. So you have to be <laughs> super, yeah. You, you have to be super efficient and clever about how you make these snips, um, because you can never be sure if the die will let you cut in, in a. In, it, it won't. It will make you cut in a very obtuse and inefficient way to make these particular Tetris shapes you're trying to make. Um, and it does require a fair bit of uh, planning and a fair bit of contingency planning. Um, so, okay, well, I'm not going to get the piece I want. All right, well, I'll end up cutting it in half, and at least I can cover half of this objective, and then maybe I'll try to get the rest later. It's really... Uh, I apologize. It's really sharp. And, oh, um, well done, sir. Well yeah, done. I thank appreciate you. I, that. It's it's just the truth, though. And um, this is another one that my wife absolutely fell in love with. The uh, first time he plays, you are not getting rid of this game. Uh, it's it's it has variable levels of complexity. If you want to make it more of a gateway game, so it doesn't require quite as much planning because you can um, just fill up the Tetris pieces, or you can also be required to um, fill up tougher Tetris pieces that require specific shapes that are tougher to come up with. It's 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 really sharp, and there's just a wonderful tactile sense when you play this game. You're basically doing arts and crafts the board game and that's it's really compelling i i'll be honest i dismissed it out of hand and just moved on and just whatever but i'll be honest it's kind of a interesting take on a roll and write or rolling clip i guess yes is now yep, a yep. thing um yep. yeah yeah uh i would play it it's not something that i would ever show on the show i don't think but i if somebody broke this out i would be probably apprehensive but looking at it and hearing about it yeah all right, I would give it a fair shake because it sounds like legitimately a fun game. Exactly. It 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 has a very attractive gimmick, and you look at it and you think, oh, that's just a gimmick, but then it surprises you when you actually start having to wrestle that gimmick to the ground. Nice. 
All right. So there you go. What's the name of that again? Number 13, Clip Cut Parks. All right. Which brings us to my number 12, which is higher up on your list here. Not too far, but a little bit. So we'll wait a moment to go ahead and talk about that. So your number 12. Basically, we're pulling a dice tower is what you're saying. Well, I mean, it that way it doesn't steal your thunder for the one that's higher on your list. It just makes more sense. I'd like to say it just puts more work on me to be the one to have to be the lead describer. And that's okay. Oh, that's okay. Okay. Yeah, but there's only like three, <laughs> I think, on our list yeah. here. Funny how yeah. it worked out that way, isn't it? Funny. Well, my bad. But anyway, bad. anyway uh, we can move on to, uh, <laughs> to number 12 is from a relatively new publisher, I think, called Cosmodrome. It is Skytopia. And last year, Cosmodrome had a pretty big Euroe style hit with Smartphone Inc. And this is basically the follow-up to that. It's same publisher, same designer, and uh, same really, really good gameplay. Actually, not true. It's a very, very different style of game. But, oh, it's, it's, it's really nice. I've got a prototype of it. I'm hoping to get it filmed before the show. And I don't know if you're at all familiar with the works of Miyazaki. Uh, you know, uh, the uh, famous uh, Japanese animation studio. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all was Laputa Castle in the Sky. Uh, I'm unfamiliar with this, but I also had never heard of Ghibli films until about a year ago, and Jess has turned me on to them, so I'm starting to branch out a bit, well, so there's that. Many might consider it sacrilege, but I think Laputa Castle in the Sky is their greatest work, It is, uh, and this is basically Laputa Castle in the Sky, the board game, because we are building wonderful sky castles um, with the help of big, uh, charming uh, robot golem-type creatures. I, I think there is no way the Skytopia was not taking its direct graphic and theme implementation or uh, inspiration from Laputa Castle in the Sky. But that doesn't tell you about the game. Let me tell you about the game. Uh, we are both trying to make the most impressive cities on our floating castles. And we do this with a uh, uh, dice placement. But unlike most dice worker placement style games where you roll the dice and like, oh, I got all ones. What am I going to do with that? Or I got sixes. When you place the die, you choose what number you want to be on it. Uh, you have total control over the dice. And the number you choose determines how long it's going to take to actually build this building. And so what you can do in essence is say, I need to get this building built tomorrow. I want it up and running by next round. I will pay a ton of money to do that. Or I don't have a ton of money. I'm going to set my die so that it's going to take me five rounds to get this thing built. And I'm not going to see any benefit from it at all that time, but it didn't cost me much in upfront materials. So it's almost kind of like a reverse Macau in that regard, because it has that same feeling of trying to schedule and plan because you've got, basically what you've got is a spinning wheel. Actually thinking about it, maybe it's more like Zulk in the Mayan calendar. Oh, there's a lot of things it's like that it's evocative of uh, because uh, this ge- this central gear that's tied into the mechanical golems that spins indicates uh, how long it's going to take for you to continue building this building. As soon as it's built, you get to add it to your tableau and activate the special power on it. So one half of the game is all about I need to activate this building yesterday, so I'm going to spend a lot of money. I've got the resources. I'm going to build it really quick, or I'm going to wait. Uh, either way, once it gets built and you place it in your own area, you don't just activate that building. You activate every other previous building of the same color. So if you've ever played Deus, 
which has an incredibly wonderful and super satisfying uh, combo chain system where, okay, I need to get this building built first, and then this building, and this building, because when I build the third building, I'll reactivate the second and the first building, and if I do them all in order, the first one will feed the second one, which will make the third one incredibly powerful. And you are constantly doing this with, I think, four different types of buildings, four different colors, they all have different focuses, and uh, you know the puzzle of this game is figuring out when is this building going to come online? Okay, I need to get this building built in three rounds because I'm going to have this building built next round. Um, but in between these two, I have to ensure that this other one is fired off. So it'll give me the resources to do this. And it, it, it quickly becomes a, a, a very fun jumble of long-term planning to navigate. Uh, and it, it's all completely your control because you decide whether you're going to build fast or slow in Skytopia. Well, I all right. Um, so a few. Now, so I got a few thoughts on this. So you're going to hear about another Cosmodrome game coming uh, later on in maybe a different list mm-hmm. uh, from uh, both of us. That said, uh, Skytopia sounds all somewhat. It has similarities to another game that's going to be on my list later on, which is Crystal Palace oh. and the whole dice drafting. Mm-hmm. Or not really dice drafting, but dice as workers in Mm -hmm. which you set your own, you choose your dice to to be the pips you want them to be and the value. And uh, the difference between the games, though, is one is a time aspect, one is a financial aspect. And so that really actually really interests me. The artwork... It didn't really appeal to me, um, so I think I, I may have uh, glossed over this one uh, quicker than I should have mm. because that mechanism I'm a really big fan of. So this would be one of those cases of maybe not judging a book by its cover. Uh, yeah, dice drafting, yes. Um, again, the artwork with that like Sky City with the mechanical golem. It's a very bright, colorful, uh, yeah, charming, cartoony world definitely it is yes. and it's uh, so apparently this is telling me that i like dark and gloomy and, <laughs> and more pastel and and, and contrary whatever. to your protestations medieval right yeah apparently <laughs> who knew uh that said um this actually has now gone onto my list after hearing this so it just goes to show that even some games slip through our fingers on occasion uh so yeah there you go um I realized that I was more, uh, how do I say, the fly in the ointment. Like, I liked uh, Smartphone oh, Inc. Yeah. less the more I played it. Oh, okay. And I realized that uh, I am the exception to that, but I found it to get terribly samey mm. and to have what felt like dominant strategies in it the more we played it. Okay. And so that said, I was excited. It it was high on my anticipation list. So the fact that it's the same designer and same publisher as uh, Sky uh, uh, Smartphone, Cell Phone Inc. Smartphone Inc. Sorry, Uh, I'm intrigued to see what their what their next one is because it's taken a completely different aesthetic. Because that went very clean, very Apple like, yes, to where everything is stark and, and very plain but clean. And this is much more colorful and whimsical. So I'm curious to see it. So yeah, there you go. Skytopia uh, in the circle of time. (laughs) Yes, that'd be the full title, which I totally missed. All right. All right. So that brings me now to my number 11, 
which again is another apparently I have failed <laughs> at putting if I hadn't played these games because it's funny when you open up the SM preview uh, list uh, on BGG and you sort it by most thumbs. Mm-hmm. The first game uh, that comes up is this game that's on my list that I'm, I saw this and I was like, wow, I feel like we played this like six, eight months ago. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, right, we have. Indeed. And that's on Mars, uh, designed by Vital Lacerda and published by Eagle Griffin Games. I have played this game and have run games of this at conventions close to a dozen times at this point. So it feels like an old game to me because I've played it so much. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I've played it so much is a testament to how good I think the game is. If you like Vitor Lacerda's games, you're going to like On Mars, likely. As long as the theme doesn't turn you off, you're going to enjoy this game. The fact that uh, in it, you have workers and you're going to be uh you have two sides of the board you have space side and you have colony side and whichever side your worker is on is what actions you're going to be able to take worker placement esque and the space side tends to be the get resources side and the colony side is do stuff side that's not a hundred percent true but big picture wise mm-hmm. that's what you're looking at and ultimately you are collectively trying to make the colony the colony that you are creating on Mars to be more self-sufficient to where fewer and fewer trips from Earth via spaceship as well as fewer and fewer trips from uh, in uh, in space that you're actually needing to actually travel and it's not at all co- uh, cooperative. It is very, co- uh, very much a competitive game. But the timer of the game is cooperative in that when certain thresholds are met collectively, the game, the players dictate that yeah. between when they complete goals as well as get their colony level to a certain point. This game, at the end of it, I felt like. I had played a game that was very similar in just the way it made me feel to Lisboa. Mm-hmm. So if you enjoyed Lisboa, I think you're going to enjoy On Mars, even though they are completely different games. There's different mechanisms. There are different ways in which the games actually work. They're very, they have nothing in common other than Vital Lacerda and Eagle Griffin. Outside of that, though, the feel that it gave me was similar to Lisboa. Now, considering Lisboa won the Golden Elephant Award, which is our our award that we give out for Best Heavy Game of the Year, that should say something. Mm -hmm. That said, on Mars, my number 11, uh, yeah, probably should be higher if I hadn't played it a dozen times. Here's my question for you. I've also played it because I covered it when it was on Kickstarter. Uh, And at the time, I mean, I played all of Vitel's games, and I would still call Lisboa his heaviest game and I would probably put on Mars at his number two agree disagree I I could see that um compared to Gallerist or oh yeah it's heavier than the Gallerist Uh, the only other one that I would uh, honestly put on par there you go is Vinos Mm -hmm. that is up there so I would say that in some order that you can probably 
at a given day, say maybe this one's a little bit heavier, but I would say Vinos, uh, Lisboa and on Mars are on par with one another as far as weight and complexity and depth of the yeah. decision matrix. I would say those three are, and I would probably say that, uh, Lisboa and on Mars are probably going to edge out, uh, Vinos. V- when I speak to Vinos, you're talking I mean first the- edition, obviously. Right, the when they 2010 still had the version of it, exactly. Yeah. I can't uh, believe he said, cut that. That was my favorite thing, was the banking. I, I agree, but at least in a new edition, you have op- options to play both, yes. so there's mm-hmm. that. But yeah, on Mars, um, what I'm curious, what do you think well, of... Did you, I, I liked I mean, it quite a bit. I like all of his games. I'm, I, I stand in awe of his ability to... you know, I mean, he is probably the most thematically driven designer, Euro designer... In the industry, because he bends over backwards to include so much minutia, which may sound bad, but I mean that in a good way, Uh, because even though at the heart of all his games, it is just a single worker, it is just a single card you play. And yet there is such a universe of knock on effects from that one simple choice you make that leads into subsequent choices by both you and everybody else, that they're just beautiful clockwork mechanisms. I asked because as much as I was really blown away by On Mars, it like uh, to me, it was just slightly less d- uh, deep, heavy, crunchy than uh, Lisboa, and I had already identified Lisboa as okay. It's a bridge too far. Um, Vinos first edition and no farther, and uh, you know that's that's about that's like that's my upper ceiling for personal weight, uh, and and games like On Mars and uh, Vinos and. To a certain extent, Madeira, when it boils right down to it, probably take yes. it just a bit uh, beyond our personal comfort. Not that we can't play, but just that we become too fatigued in a good way, but still fatigued. Uh, oh yeah. no, I get yeah. that. There, there are certainly there are certain some of these games that we do enjoy on the show. I'm exhausted yeah. afterwards, mm-hmm. so I completely understand uh, that aspect. But yeah, um, I'm a big fan, and I think. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm a big fan of Vital's work and, you know, tools and Ego Griffin and the way they they're, they're the way they're elevating the publication of these games and the production value of these games. Um, top notch. Oh, definitely. So definitely. Big fan. Yes. And yeah, like I said, the only reason on Mars isn't higher is because I've played it a dozen times already. <laughs> and so there's well, that. that's, that's um, the best thing but you can say about again, I've played it a dozen times. Right. Yeah. So there's that. Mm-hmm. All right. So that is my number 11. Yours, sir. OK, my number 11 is it's a wonderful world, which you would not be able to in a million years. Guess what this game is from the title. Couldn't be more divorced. This is a just around the corner near future setting probably in 2030, 2050, something like that, where players are drafting cards or drafting cards to uh, do engine building. We're each trying to make the best near future society by balancing our society's needs for military strength and economic strength, uh, our ability to explore and, and make scientific breakthroughs. That's thematically what's going on. It's kind of a seven wonders set in 2050 instead of the year of antiquities. And it's reasonable to mention seven wonders because it's also a card drafting game. And it, it follows the same basic idea. Oh, I've got all these cards. This would be a great card for me. I should play it. Nope, because I can't give you this card because that'd be really great for you. That sort of thing. You know, standard card drafting stuff. Here's the thing that makes it... There's two things that really make it stand out to me. One is we go through the draft. We select all our cards. but And when we reveal them all simultaneously, hand the hand on to everybody. But we do not play the card immediately. We just put the card in a queue. 
And then we do it again and again. And so we're each building up a queue of cards that we want to play later on. And everybody can see what everybody else is doing. And that makes the potential for hate drafting in this game much more prevalent than your standard. Because, oh, I can see what you're doing. Oh my gosh. I mean, you know, it's one thing in Seven Wonders to say, oh, I can't give you another science because you've been working on that the whole game. But no, I can see what you're working on right now for this round. And, um, you know, and so you feel much more directly tied into what everybody else is doing and much more nervous as you reveal more and more and more about what you want to get done this round as you're building up, as you're making progress on completing all these different cards. Cards either they become, you know, the basis for industry for your society or technological breakthroughs, what have you. So that's one thing that I thought really made this stand out from what is an incredibly crowded market full of card drafting games. That was very cool and special. But that's secondary to the fact that this is an engine builder. Once you've got all these cards, you then have to decide what you're going to do with them because these are multi-use cards. In much the same way as Race for the Galaxy, I can either use this card to put it in play to start... Um, slowly accumulating resources to complete it. It becomes an objective for me to complete. Or I can burn this card to actually generate resources that I need to complete my other cards. You know, so very much, you know, a Race for the Galaxy style thing. And, um, you know, of course, what you plan to do with all these cards are not what you're actually going to do with them once the uh, draft is done, because you couldn't quite get what you needed. So there's the first, the really tense element of the draft. Then the tough puzzle of, all right, okay, of all these cards I kept, which ones am I going to burn to convert into resources to help these other ones? But... That's not the exciting thing. The exciting thing is, once you finish one of these cards, it becomes an ongoing resource generator for you for the rest of the game. And most games like this would say, okay, you finished it. Next round, it'll start generating for you. Not so here. It starts generating for you immediately. So um, you can instantly, you can create very, very intricate and complex cause and effect chains of, okay, well, I'll burn this card to get this particular building built because once it gets built, it will generate three things that allows me to finish these two things that I've had since the beginning of the game and putting both of those in allows me to get 18 science in one turn, which means I instantly discovered the lost city of Mu, which everybody thought I was insane to even take in the first place. And I did all of that in what feels like one turn. Now, it wasn't. It was actually a whole bunch of turns of drafting, which was tense in of itself. But then when all this comes together and you just get this, everybody is doing this throughout the game, getting these explosions of build, generate, to build, generate, to build. And, you know, know, at the beginning of the game, we're just tiny little nations. And by the end, we're super nations. The great sense of escalation here, it feels wonderful. Um, You know, of course, it's got all the normal stuff of you got long-term goals, things you're trying to hit, uh, in addition to just generating points off of the stuff you build. But the one-two punch of that, oh, everybody can see what I'm going for. And Will they give me? Will that card come back that I need so badly? But more importantly, once I build this thing, it's active immediately. This is something that now that I've experienced here, I would like to see in more games, and you never see that. It's always a, hey, good job, you built it. You'll get to use that in a half hour from now when you uh, get to the next round. Uh, it's, it feels <laughs> great to use it right now because it just springboards you into these cool chains. I like it a lot. It made my game of the month, my first ever game of the month, when I started doing monthly roundup videos. Uh, It's my number 11. It's a wonderful world. I'm going to pick up a copy of it now (laughs) and check it out. Yep. All right. So there's that. All right. Wow. All right. So it seems when you get two people together that are passionate about board games, love talking about board games, and professionally talk about board games, 
things tend to run a little bit long, or in our case, in, in mine and Richard's case, a lot a bit long. So we decided to break this episode into two halves, uh, part one and part two. So hopefully you guys have enjoyed listening to part one. And if you want to catch the rest of the show, go listen to part two over there. You're going to not only hear the rest of the 2019 Essen preview show. You're going to hear the rest of our list, our top 20 most anticipated games. And on top of that, you're going to hear our top 10 demo only available games, as well as our top 10 expansions that we're looking forward to checking out over at Essen. So if you guys enjoyed this, go check out part two of the 2019 Essen preview show. Thanks for listening, y'all.